All right. Good morning, class. Uh, welcome to the latest Art Eater podcast. I'm here. Uh, I'm Richmond. I'm here with my buddies, Sean and Andy. And uh, hello. Hey, Yo. <laughs> all right. Man, what what podcast number is this now? Is this number number seven? Uh, technically, the Vanquish episode was number seven. So we're oh. at eight now. Oh, wow. Number eight. That is a good number. Cool. Yeah, I've, I've been having a lot of fun with this. Looking, looking forward to this every week. All right. So um, today we're we're going to talk about uh, Baldur's Gate. Um, you know, as everyone knows, the the uh, they just debuted a demo at uh, PAX East, uh, and then I think we're we're also going to talk a bit about just our experiences with D and D. Yeah. So uh, what 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 is everyone's experience? Ex- <laughs> Sometimes we have to um, record from pretty weird locations. So uh, please uh, don't mind the noise. Um, yeah, I'm in a laundromat. Nice. Wow. I, I am not in a laundromat. <laughs> yeah, I'm just at the office. All right. Um, right. So, so uh, yeah, today we're going to talk about uh, Baldur's Gate and D&D. Um, so before before we get into Baldur's Gate, I was just wondering, um, like, what, what is everyone's experience with, with D&D? So, yeah, I always always loved, like, uh, fantasy stuff, uh, creative stuff. Um, started playing D&D at uh, a very young age with my, my older brothers as the uh, DMs. Uh, they let me join one of their games. I, I, I played as a dwarf. I think possibly because I liked the dwarf in Golden Axe. I liked uh, Gilius Thunderhead. So I just thought um, that would be a cool class to play. I think they also just needed a fighter, too. Um, so that's that's how I got started. And I, I just remember having uh, a ton of fun, you know, like just it's so fun to, to, to engage in this um, collective game of imaginative storytelling and, and character acting with everybody. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was uh, that kicked off a lifelong love for, for D&D and everything related. Um, uh, I started playing with my friends, too. When I when I got a little bit older, we you know, got old enough to get our own, like, uh, books and figure out the rules. I uh, got into a lot of the novels, um, like, yeah, uh, Dragonlance. And uh, my, my favorite was actually the uh, Forgotten Realms books by uh, R.A. Salvatore, Icewind Dale trilogy, the Dark Elf trilogy. Really, really love those books. Um, oh, gosh, I remember, was Cast the Minotaur, was that also, was that Forgotten Realms? Oh, that was Dragonlance. That was Dragon. ah, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dragonlance had uh, some pretty pretty cool, pretty weird stuff, too. Anyways, yeah, was really into the TSR books. Um, and then from D&D, got into lots of other RPGs, too, after that. But, um, yeah, yeah, we can we can talk about that later. How about, how about you guys? Uh, I can go next, because I think it's probably a little bit shorter than Andy's. Okay. Um, I had a, a weird run-in with D&D. I didn't actually play a real game of it until I was well out, out of college, I think. Um oh. But I also read the TSR books by uh, Salvatore. I think uh, the Legacy or and Passage of Dawn were um, one of the or some of the ones. So I read those and I, I enjoyed them, but I hadn't actually played it. And then I think uh, I got into Neverwinter Nights first, and uh, I didn't realize that it was part of Forgotten Realms uh, or D and D. But um, as I played more, of, of course, like Baldur's Gate, so. Um, more recently, I haven't uh, still been playing like real games of it so much, but I've been uh, listening to a ton of D&D podcasts uh, like uh, Critical Role and uh, There Will Be Dungeons. So uh, I, I have a, a lot of uh, 
time to enjoy more D and D. But uh, it's it's definitely one of my favorite uh, gameplay types and uh, kind of story approaches. Uh, I think when I when I did play it, we played uh, a version on uh, on top of D and D five or uh, called uh, Kingmaker, which I thought was uh, an incredibly fun campaign. So all right, um, let's see. Well, I remember like uh, yeah, the uh, R A Salvatore books with like Drist, the Dark Elf. Although I thought the way it's written, it looks like his name is Drizzit, but it's not. Oh, it's not? I've been yeah, saying Drizzit the whole time. It's, it's Drist. Yes. Drist. Salvatore. Drist de Erden, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Drist Erden. Written by Ra Salvatore. Um, Ra Salvatore, he played ice hockey, so he put some of that, like, physicality into his writing, which is why, like, they're always fighting in there way knocking people into stuff um i remember the the ms dos uh D D games like the ones where you just make your character and then move around on a grid and like get eaten by land sharks immediately <laughs> and then like tabletop rpgs in general like there's also the the riff sorts books those are really fun to to read as like D D plus all 80s anime that ever got subtitled yeah there's Baldur's gate uh played a little bit of that um i played yeah dnd third edition at like the card game shop that i played pokemon cards at now like the people i played with uh, like they really liked high powered games with like lots of magic so that was a good crash course in just learning all of the ins and outs of the mechanics and all the things that can't be resolved by just looking at like the mechanics and that like you really can't play as as Drist or Drizzit in an actual D&D game if everyone knows what they're doing you need to turn into a gold dragon and then destroy everything in the room instead of fighting with swords power gaming I mean that's just how it's written like because Drist is like whoa he can like fight with two swords but in D&D 3rd Edition, it's like you have to stand still to actually attack with both of your swords and get in a bunch of hits. And then someone with a bow could just back away and shoot you. Or someone could fly away and throw, not even throw a fireball at you. They would do something like, you know, put you to sleep or just cover you in fog and then like make a hole around you so you fall in a hole and then they can just bury you instead of fighting directly. Oh, man. So he, it's, he... Uh, it's like... Uh, is it Kaizo Mario? Like when people make those super hard Mario maps, except you do that on the fly if you're a wizard or a cleric or a druid. Oh, so you, even if you have a dexterity of 20, like Drist, you, you'd still get caught up in all that? Like if you don't roll the dice at all, then you can't stop something, which would be like making the entire room collapse or making the, the floor disappear. And did you ever play uh, Pool of Radiance uh, on DOS? I think so. I don't remember which one it was exactly. Oh, like the one that I played the most of was uh, Dark Sun Shattered Lands. That was the, that was like the Magic Apocalypse Mad Max D&D setting. Uh, yeah, I, I remember um, the Dark Sun stuff. They had the, the covers for the books were painted by a Brom, right? Yes. Brom, yeah, they yeah, were he awesome. Did these awesome rip dude covers. Yeah, yeah, I loved uh, those covers. Like, really drew me into that that world. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Fools of Radiance, beautiful, like, 80s aerobics blonde woman with, like, her cleavage on the cover. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that does sound about right. I, I know there's a newer version up on Gold Games. I think they have a different cover now, but that was definitely, yeah, yeah the original cover. I, was, I think I was, like, maybe 10 years old playing those. Uh, I don't remember, like, all of the mechanics. I just remember, like, Cloud Kill was a spell where, like, this fog, these tiles of uh, green fog, because it's an MS-DOS game, it's just, like, the same tile replicated over and over, and then just everything dies under it. It was, like, really startling. It was like, wow, like getting killed not with like swords or arrows or a lightning bolt it's just a fog that chokes you that sucks all right real quick the cover the cover for, for pools of radiance is actually a extremely uh, handsome uh male warrior uh, wielding a sword he yeah. looks looks a bit like alucard or something he, he does have very beautiful farrah faucet like hair though um and oh, there's a red okay. dragon breathing fire behind him so so he okay. just just got the gender wrong. Still a very beautiful blonde uh, person on the cover. I don't I don't know what it was like physically when the game came out because I didn't have it then because I played it much later once it was on digital platforms. But it, yeah. apparently the game also had like a code wheel for translating between Dorman and Elish into English, and it was like one of those uh, additional mechanics where it was uh, not really necessary, but it uh, was it was it, it was kind of like one of those more manual attention to detail things where uh, there's really no easy way to do it you just have to decipher uh using the code wheel oh yeah like um i mean these like 80s games some of them were expecting you to like uh, have some graph paper and then draw a map or like just write down everything because if you get a quest there's no quest list it's just this guy said something and then a few hours later did you remember it I, I seem to recall that uh, if you deciphered certain things, you, you could use it as code words and stuff to avoid yeah. combat or to open puzzles and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, oh. they, it was pretty pretty cool. They digitized it for uh, the re-releases of it, um, but apparently okay. the original game was a physical code wheel that yeah. you could get. Do you, wow. do you remember like what real-world languages they based it off of? Was it like Tolkien stuff, or did they make it up? I remember it was it was meant to be Elvish and Dwarven, but I don't actually know what it was based on. Yeah. It, it, I mean, that was very much a Tolkien thing, and it was around like the nineteen late nineteen eighties, right when that came out. So that would would work and make sense. Okay. Did they ever work out like an official Elven or or, or Dwarvish language for D and D? I think they just use like old Irish if they want something to sound elfy. Mm. And then they probably just like use Klingon or something for Dwarfish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's um let, let's talk about the new Boulders game for a minute. Uh, did yeah, did yeah. you all get a chance to watch the uh, the the gameplay that they they previewed at uh, at PAX East? Yeah. 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 Um, so that's great. Yeah. What what are your your impressions? Uh. So. Uh, I, I can start with the thing around. It's it's one of those things where uh, it looks really good, uh, and it, but it's very clear that it's being done by uh, Larian Studios. The so Larian is a, a company, the company that's most well known for Divinity: Original Sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've actually been around for quite a while, uh, but they they were really they were kind of uh, running kind of from difficulty to difficulty for a few years. Uh, and they really, like, they, they produced a, a number of Divinity games. Like, they really have a lot of uh, 
base in the D&D style genre. They did some educational stuff as well, but it wasn't until they kickstarted Divinity Original Sin. And then, if, and if, uh, of course, if you're in the industry at all, you're on Steam, you'll see that it is insanely popular. So, Oh, yeah. Um, one thing that I, I think I, I noticed pretty much immediately is, obviously, the older Baldur's Gate games were like Bioware and Obsidian working together and stuff like that. So this one feels very much like Divinity, like our original Sin game, but uh, it's still, I, I like, I immediately uh, was feeling kind of the the love the love letter, if you will, to D and D. Like they they really ratcheted up the the kind of paying attention to the level of detail in the rule sets and uh, giving you as much freedom as possible. So uh, I don't want to like get too deep into it, but the reason I wanted to start with talking about Larian is because like immediately you see really cool influences that I think most people would say are not in the original Baldur's Gate games, but are yeah. probably a welcome addition. Like the the focus on verticality, uh, the just like the amount of interaction that you can have with the environment. Like even in the uh, and it's I, I gotta say like it's one of the most honest. Uh, it's like you, you like he he uh, during the demo like he loses and dies a couple times. Like things don't necessarily go his way, and it's not even like an honest yeah. demo, like, there are bugs, because there are bugs, too, but it's just, uh, clearly, it shows how they didn't have, like, a planned out, you know, well, well curated thing to show you, like, they were showing you that there's a lot of fun and flexibility, and there's a lot of attention to making sure that it plays into what is probably the biggest, um, I think, element of D&D, which is, like, freedom, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought, um, I thought the way that they incorporated a lot of the uh, the way that they incorporated a lot of the traditional rules was really lovingly, expertly handled. Like it, it didn't feel contrived or forced. Like they, they happened during the beats where they should, right? Like when when uh, the character's talking to someone and they, you know, you need to do a role check if you're like convincing enough to, um, yeah, ask this person to do what you want them to do. Uh, and and, yeah. and it felt nice to suddenly see the the physical die represented on screen there. Um, I I know this isn't like doesn't sound super original or anything, but just just the particular execution of it was very nice. That's like what you expect of D and D, but uh, it's also like in actually playing D and D, no one actually really knows how those roles are supposed to work, like for dialogue. Oh yeah. Yeah. Would you say is it kind of up to the uh, D DM's discretion? Yeah, it really is. You know, uh, well, that's also like how you fix any problems. Like the DM and the party can just agree to move on. Like one difference, uh, like reading a analysis of Baldur's Gate 3 and Divinity 2 is that uh, in Divinity 2, because it's not based on D&D, like their dialogue system is more if you have this certain, uh, like, you know, your points in certain dialogue things, you just get more options or you automatically pass certain things. The chance of failure, like, in a D&D role, like, that does sound exciting, but the chance of failure also means, like, everyone will eventually fail, and you can't actually do a Lord of the Rings story. It's more like a, like, Always Sunny, or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, or Red Dwarf, like, but um, that's, that's the tone that they're taking for Baldur's Gate 3, which I think is good, like, everyone has a a baby mind player stuck in their head and now they're running around figuring out what to do before they turn into tentacle monsters. Like there's something kind of like wacky, like 60s sci-fi about it that's kind of goofy. 
but you can still do some serious stories, but it's more about like, uh, yeah, like that demo. It's all about watching uh, the ways you can fail. And That's true. That is what like 70s D&D was very much about. Like, uh, I think I mentioned this in previous podcasts, like uh, Gygax would uh, make these super dungeons to run at conventions and just see if people can even survive like not even pass but like just escape with like their lives not even treasure um so death was like a big part of it it was like a if you took an obstacle course show like ninja warrior that built like a story around it like even though you can say okay yeah like elves and dwarves that's lord of the rings but totally not like a lord of the Rings story because in D D, like frodo dies because he's not useful and then the characters just like leave with their treasure or join Sauron because it's safer. <laughs> right. I think people affectionately refer to early D&D as uh, murder ho- hobos, right? Um, yeah, that's like a play style. Um, yeah. If Gary Gygax didn't want you to kill the mayor, then why did he say the mayor's hiding gold under his bed? It was written there <laughs> for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the verticality depth... Um, that's something that video games do much easier than like even uh even if you play dd on a grid like getting that verticality element is usually like something left out because if you have like a grid paper with like miniatures on top of it then you just kind of think of it as flat yeah well yeah you're right because the you you normally wouldn't have it necessarily it's whatever you imagined right so unless the unless the dm specifically called it out then you're right but um, yeah. It seemed to be what they were doing in the demo as well, even like showing that it was trying to like unlike um, like previous games, a lot of the older ones are talking about Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale. They tended to do exploration by having like a um, <laughs> I wanted to call it a cone of silence, but actually I meant a fog of war. Yeah. Like kind yeah. of show you to, and it seems like what they've done here is kind of encouraged exploration by showing that yeah. there's a way to look at the environment and be like, wait, is there stuff here? I think he demoed that there was, like, something under a rock, which is pretty similar to being under a bed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, that was their example of a passive skill check where you only notice it if a character's skill or stat for spotting and noticing things is high enough. But um, I do wonder how they do that in the game. Like, if you just keep on exiting and entering that area, do you eventually make that check? Like, do they roll for every single character? Like, if you get a new party member, could you go back and find it again? Or is it just, like, one check and then it's gone forever? Or do you have to just keep on clicking on things? And can you blindly find things, like, in Mist? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, there's, I, there's a lot of um, interesting considerations for translating, you know, pen and paper to uh, something like like a computer game where you, you just have to account for everything yeah. ahead of time. Just, I just remembered something about like the verticality element. Um, like I I don't really play much actual D and D, but um, I do like a lot of uh, just like thought experiments with like other groups of uh, people and designers and like the verticality element. You know, like uh, falling damage is baked into D and D. So you could hypothetically build a character who can pick someone up jump 100 feet in the air, and then drop them, and then you'll deal 100 feet of falling damage. That's awesome. You could make, like, yeah. a Zangief Dragoon. 
that's that's actually what I was trying to do. Like, can I just make a Zangief? Uh, but then it's like the effort to do that. I mean, it was really fun to think about, but um, then it's like, well, can you actually like drop someone as a free action? I don't know. And can you like jump over a hole and then drop them? Like, can you drop them midway through your path? Like, that's the open-ended thing in tabletop D&D. But then if it's a video game, like, yeah, like Disgaea is a game that you can kind of do that. There's no jumping, but you can stack everyone in a tower and then throw someone from a tower of like 12 characters. Yeah, yeah, it's got that insane stacking system. Something that I thought was uh, well done in, in the demo was when they were kind of showing stuff where you could go off on paths. Like, I think he has one thing where, where he goes into that cave or he goes around, like, he kind of goes around an encounter to kind of sneak up on someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed when they were moving the characters that until they moved the characters in that area, it just looked like part of the background to me. Um, I was like, wow, those, like, it's not like in other games with verticality where. Uh, they kind of make you look at it, you know what I mean? Like, they try to make it obvious that it's interactable. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way that they're probably going to do more to play with it, which is that uh, everything in the environment seems to be something that you can interact with uh, at least more reasonably than others. Like, I think you also demoed, you could, like, dip, you know, your bow in fire and stuff like that. So I, yeah. I think the, the roots coming from uh, Divinity are going to be really good addition to uh, Water's Gate. Yeah, um, another interesting system they had was uh, I, I like how you can sneak in the shadows, you know, so like the environments are not just cosmetic, like uh, you, you are rewarded for like play, paying attention to them and, you know, you know, like immersing yourself and, and like just thinking like, well, how should my character traverse this terrain? You know, like if, if you're an assassin, you can, you know, if you're dexterous, you can stick to the shadows and and sneak up on people. I like yeah. that. In the Drizzit books, in the Drizzt books, like that works because there's like a certain, okay, the author will say what happens. But if you're actually sitting around a table in D&D and only one person can sneak, then like splitting the parties and experience that is, uh, can either mean like only one player is really participating or they get into trouble that no one else can reach. So this is one thing where, like, being in a video game, it's actually kind of, uh, it works out better most of the time in a video mm. game where you'd be simultaneously controlling four characters instead of, you know, at a table of five people waiting for one person to finish their scouting. Well, um, they, they are doing co-op in this, right? And I, I think they're doing, like, you can simultaneously decide your actions, uh, even though it's turn-based, you, you can both... Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it plays out, but, yeah. but I know it's... I think their example was um, one person's talking to, like, a guard, and then, and then another person is sneaking past them. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. I feel like uh, a lot of games have actually struggled with doing this well, because, like, um, it's not D&D, yeah. but I know Dragon Age tried to... Because it's interesting, the original Baldur's Gate system was not turn-based. It was... Uh, it was it was sort of real time, but you could pause. And I think uh, Dragon yeah. Age Inquisition tried to do that as well. And yeah. uh, it's it's a tough it's a tough interaction to mess around with because like on one hand, planning out various actions can be cumbersome, and then like playing them out over time, uh, it's like a, kind of a very tactical thing. But yeah. uh, it takes you know a lot of uh, interface consideration. Uh, whereas yeah. in, in turn based, just kind of builds in the 
I don't know, the psychological interaction that you need in order to think through multiple steps. So I actually like the choice there, but and it seems like the way they're doing it is a little bit more elegant. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's something I enjoyed in the Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 games, that, um, that real time where you can pause. Like, uh, for example, this is something that in a fantasy setting, like, when you imagine, like, two armies clashing, like, you know, orcs versus the elves and on a field, like, they're running at each other, right? Or if there's, like, a black, a black knight and a white knight, you'd imagine them charging at each other, right? Yeah. Like a dragon swooping and then, like, a knight charges. But in, okay. like, normal tabletop D&D, like, because it's turn-based, if you have two people jousting, then only one of them is moving, and then the other is staying still. That's just the nature of the way their turn base works. It's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. Huh. Yeah, that, that is always a difficult thing to uh, solve with, with turn base. Um, there, there have been solutions, though. Like, you can have a movement phase and then an action phase afterwards with, like, movement interception. Or, or you just make characters kind of, like, occupy the same space or just abstract it. Yeah. Um, I do think it, it is interesting that they're they're emphasizing the turn-based uh, nature of this latest Baldur's Gate. You know, it yeah. it, it shows you how how it's uh, a lot of trends are like a pendulum, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. I think in the probably by the early aughts, people were really like against turn-based, saying it was like old-fashioned and everything should be real-time. And you know, here yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like uh, you know. Fallout 3 was uh, the 3D one, right? Yeah, like yeah. before that, Fallout 1, 2, and Tactics was kind of, you know, that Baldur's Gate style, although it was completely turn-based with action points. And, like, when Fallout 3 came out, it was like, you know, oh, this is, turn-based is outdated. Here's, like, the future of, of computer RPGs. It's, what's interesting, I thought about the way they did turn-based, though, in this game, is, like, to your point... It is a it is a pendulum, but they're starting to integrate some other changes to it. Where it doesn't feel turn based though, because the um, it's not like a tactical RPG where you make all the choices and the enemy can do nothing, right? Like there are some interactions that all happen in real time. Uh, so things are like when you're making actions and moving, uh, then like people like when you're kind of like jumping or moving between things, or uh, if uh, what's it called when? Uh, when you when you if you go by an enemy or you try to move wrong, uh, they'll still hit you. It's usually like an opportunity attack. Yeah, 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 like, attack of opportunity. Uh, leaving a leaving a threat zone. Yeah, so those things are represented. So I don't know. There's something about it that didn't doesn't feel like a classic level of turn base where right. the enemies are not doing nothing while you're, you're they're not they're not waiting for you to make attack turns and stuff. It's kind of um, was it was it you Andy that was talking about the. The kind of uh, the the manga type of uh, time. Yeah. Last podcast. Uh, it's kind of yeah, like that, yeah. right? Yeah. When we're talking about a quick time event, yeah. Yeah. Uh, opportunity attacks. That's uh, that's kind of what happened in D and D because it's turn based. Like so, yeah. Like in D and D, if you don't have opportunity attacks, then um, you could just move past anyone. Like if the wizard is being attacked by an orc with an axe, then the, the wizard can walk away without being hit. Although, then the punishment is, you know, taking hit point damage, and then if you have enough hit points, you really can't just walk through a lot of attacks. The one thing I will say that uh, I don't I don't expect a, a D&D video game to be able to capture, but one of the reasons why I've been 
enjoying D&D podcasts is I feel like there's one element of D&D, which is the, the combat and the freedom and the dungeons. And the other element of it is the, the flavor uh, that characters add to uh, their own. So like if you listen to like a There Will Be Dungeons or, or Critical Role or something like that, like they add a lot of flavor to the character just by what they say during combat or like, but like I'm going to go aha and stab him. So I'm, I'm hoping that at some point that that kind of flexibility can make its way into video games. But it is also obviously why a podcast version of D&D is better for that. But a game isn't focuses more on the combat element. I'm sure, like, uh, I'm sure Divinity probably already has a bunch of, like, custom mods for, like, adding more voices. Yeah. I do remember, uh, like, Baldur's Gate, all the characters talk diff- pretty differently. Uh, oh, yeah, it had, vo- weird, it had voice acting even early on, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, one of your, like, like, the beginning of the game is, like, your mentor, like, spiriting you away through the darkness, and then you're attacked by ogres. And, like, he dies tragically saving you. But it was, like, modeled with the in-game engine. And if someone takes, like, critical damage, they explode. So the first time I played the game was, like, the like the mentor character getting exploded by an, o- an ogre. It's like, wow, this game's pretty, pretty hardcore. <laughs> and then I only realized later, like, oh, it's not scripted. <laughs> Just because... Uh, then I was like in the kobold mines, and then one of my party members, who's like a like your sassy sister, she then exploded because she got hit by a magic bolt, and thieves have like five hit points starting off. Emergent stories. Do like that. Uh, does Divinity Two have that level of violence? Like uh, ex- exploding people. I think yeah, it does. Like they're yeah. like meaty chunks. Yeah, I think it does. Okay. I, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, my I immediately went to all of the times that I set someone on fire, but I don't remember exploding anybody. But I, I would I think it, yeah, it seemed to have a level of detail that would show that. Yeah. Remember the Baldur's Gate one characters like I only realized it later, but most of them were like some kind of like romance novel fetish stuff. What? What do you mean? I mean like uh, early on, your party members are like this this really wimpy sounding cleric and then his wife has like this like sultry russian james bond seductress voice (laughs) and it's like and then the the wimpy guy dies and then you can sleep with his surviving wife (laughs) as you as you would do in dnd yes yeah (laughs) making it very awkward potentially for whoever's playing that character (laughs) yeah so I, I uh, wanted to also mention, uh, before we get off kind of talking about the Baldur's Gate 3 uh, stuff, is it, it also seems like they're they're paying a, a lot of attention to, uh, so not, not just like verticality for the sake of it, but they demo like the, the kind of the, the featherweight type of thing or whatever. So uh, they were also talking about they're going to have like a, a camp system where you're going to build it out as well. Uh, it just seems like they're they're adding kind of a lot of uh, different layers into uh, how how you experience the world, and I think if if uh, if you think about D and D as like a main way that you explore a world, or you you get you kind of build it into your own, I think it's uh, yeah. So like, uh, was there ca- uh, gameplay in the camping section? They they didn't get to that in the demo. Yeah, they just okay. showed it briefly. Um, okay, like 
uh, just camping moments are nice. Like, I remember in Breath of Fire 4, like, you can just camp to restore your hit points, change your skills around, and it just shows everyone in a tent around a fire. And then there's the, uh, have you guys played Darkest Dungeon? That one uh, really integrated uh, camping as a mechanic in that um, your characters, they, like, healing in that in that game is pretty difficult. And there's a stress meter uh, along with your hit points. So camping is part of like healing, reducing stress, uh, getting some bonuses. Like it's part of the gameplay in that you can be attacked while you're camping too. It's kind of like, have you played um, Don't Starve? Don't, why can't I, is it uh, Don't Starve Together, I believe? Yeah, yeah, Don't Starve. Sorry, I've only played the co-op one, Don't Starve Together. But that one's almost entirely built around camping uh, and surviving. Yeah, the, that kind of survival game has been pretty popular. I haven't played that one, though. Um, then there's, what, Frostpunk? That's more like, a, instead of one person survival, it's like the survival of a community in icing. Uh, the reason I, I thought of Don't Starve is because uh, basically at night while you're camping, uh, like, the shadows and monsters can come get you. Like, it's very much that idea that you're never safe. Uh, even while camping, yeah. it's actually part of the, it's a big part of the gameplay. Um, in Darkest Dungeon, it's your character abilities. You have to kind of choose, like, do I want to restore my stats? Or is this really stressed out character? Should he rest? Or should he be using his vital, like, watching ability to prevent an ambush? Uh, another thing about campfires and games, not D&D related, but some of the greatest moments in gaming history have happened around campfires. Uh, there's a great moment in Chrono Trigger around a oh, campfire. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one, one of the greatest uh, moments in games. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, like, when you said campfire in games, like, I immediately just remembered the sprites and all the things happening. Uh, in Xenogears, Faye really first meets Ellie over a campfire. Ooh, it's just, it's such scary. a good device uh, in games, because it gives you that, that moment of kind of quiet isolation, right? Yeah. yeah. Wait, is that is that before or after, like, you just beat a dinosaur with your big robot? It's right before it. Yeah, does, isn't it awesome. like drawn by your fire? Uh, I don't think so. Basically, what happens is is I that, that. Oh no, you go. I don't remember that scene. Oh, I was gonna say. I think what happens is um, you 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 kind of have this discussion, and I believe Ellie decides to you know be like to leave, basically to go on ahead, and then oh yeah yeah. Faye, yeah. Faye wakes up and he's like yeah. what? And then he's like oh, and then he hears like the. And he's like, oh no! And, he comes oh, out. Yeah. and then she's like, she's like, you know, on the ground in front of the dinosaur. So it's like right there. Yeah, that. Yeah. My sound uh, effects are right on, right on point. Very, very evocative. It's how you know she's a foolish city dweller. She doesn't know the way of dinosaurs. Wait, that's um. Wait, isn't that how Goku met Chi Chi? Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, she was running away from a uh, dinosaur. Yeah, and then she used her uh, Ultraman uh, horn to to cut off its head, and then um, it's it's already dead, but she blows it up anyways. No campfire. Oh, right, there. she has. Oh wait, she had the Ultraman blade horn, and she had the Ultraman. Yeah. What do they call it? Like a spectrum laser? I don't remember. Yeah. There's yeah. uh. No, it's it's really great to have like just a resting portion of the game. Even something like uh, World of Warcraft. Final Fantasy 14. Yeah, campfires are a pretty critical part of modern games, you know? It's like, um, even in, in yeah. Dark Souls, that's like your, your 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 safe zone, right? Like, part where you can usually take a break. You know, it's, yeah. it's really a, necessary for the rhythm of these games. Like, Kickstarter, 
there's a trend of like anything that involves like a campfire in the yes. Kickstarter will get like a million dollars. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, it's true. Campfires are an essential part of getting your your project kickstarted. So, so I guess so they're like they're... you can go. Um, hey, like I made this beer cooler that's also a chair okay but you can sit on it next to a campfire it's like oh my god <laughs> yes and then yeah. japanese kickstarter is just called campfire like i wonder if it's based off of that oh really it's just straight up called campfire that's what campfire is that's what it is right I have no like idea. I mean, I, I could see the stretch as well, like how, you know, campfire is something that you might, you come together, you sit around, you can all add wood to the fire, you can uh, yep. converse. It's it's just a gather. It's a gathering mechanism, right? It's it's not something that you often do. I mean, you might do it alone, but it's usually a, a gathering point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's very, very human, right? All, all our ancestors must have done it. Oh, it's true, uh, yeah. It's uh, the most human act. Like, dolphins are smart, but they can't make a campfire. <laughs> That's why we rule the Earth. What if Mario had a campfire where, like, you know, he can wash his feet, and it's like, wait a minute, that's Death Stranding. <laughs> yeah, Mario, if they just add camping, that immediately adds uh, the next level. Actually, yeah, Breath of the Wild, you have campfires, and you just cook mushrooms and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, the cooking system that is so fun. It's, it's yeah. very, very streamlined. It has a really pleasant sound effect. I would say, like, Baldur's Gate 3, uh, it really showed off, um, okay, like, you know, you can scatter oil, set it on fire. Divinity 2, like, if someone's in a puddle, you can electrocute them. Now it's, um, you know, we're in this world where Minecraft is, like, super duper popular, so these kinds of uh, interactions, they're no longer novel. That's almost like the standard, especially for the new generation. Yeah. Well, even if you look at games like Dreams, where it's not just encouraging people to be creative, it's uh, the next the next step of it is starting to share out those things, right? Uh, so I guess like D&D doesn't quite have that yet, but I could totally see uh, getting to a point. Wait, Divinity doesn't have an editor, does it? Does, does Divinity or any of this have like a level editor where you can like make your own crazy stages and share it? Or I I, um, I think it if it doesn't officially have one, I'm sure somebody modded one. I, I'm I'm 100 percent sure that must yeah. exist. Well, Neverwinter was built to do that, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. So so yeah, I feel like it's just a, a it, to your point, it is a logical extension of where a lot of the industry is going with encouraging. Creativity. I mean, even if you look at like, uh, have you all seen some of those levels on Mario Maker where yeah. uh, uh, people will play it and it'll it'll be like, um, what I love about that kind of idea is someone be like, oh, this level is impossible, uh, except that you have to beat the level in order to post it. Um, yeah. And like, like obviously some people will put like a secret star in order to get it done, but like there's a couple of them where you'll see someone just play it 400 times or something because they know they can beat it. Uh, but it's still one of these things where it's just punishingly difficult because someone spent an, an inordinate amount of time to create that. So I, I think that the kind of idea of, I don't know, shared torture and creativity. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, Mario Maker, the craziest things are like when it's like you have to like throw a shell at the beginning of the stage and then just make the shell bounce off of these enemies while bouncing off of the shell. It's like you're... I, 
That looks harder than actually surfing for real. <laughs> <laughs> surfing is uh, like the, uh, in Laguna. I see a lot of people doing it. Uh, yeah. Even when I'm like learning stuff like scuba diving, which is not easy. I'm looking at surfing and I'm like, well, at least it's not surfing. Like it seems <laughs> yeah. like so many variables have to come together. Like you fail way more often than you succeed. I wanted to to take a surf lesson, but then like I ate a bad fish and got sick. Now I I need to go to the beach again. It is like wow. that sounds very D and D. Well, it's just like Fall Fantasy Six. Now I know like why Sid died. <laughs> Actually, there's a, there's a moment uh, in Xenogears when Ellie and Faye get washed up uh, after the the Thames gets attacked, and he's like, "I'm gonna eat this fish," and uh, she's like, "You shouldn't eat that fish," and he's like, "I'm gonna do it," and then the next thing is him like throwing up. <laughs> yeah. It's like I told you not well, to eat that fish. Wait, that's right. Faye grew up on a mountain. Is from a landlocked area. Yes, that's the city girl then knows that food will go bad because everything is far away from her. Yeah. Wow, Xenogear's writing is so deep. He also makes a campfire to cook it on the yeah. uh, while they're surrounded by water. Yeah, so. I just wonder if uh, Baldur's Gate 3 will have a cooking system. Does D&D have a cooking system? Um, sometimes, like, I've seen some third-party stuff where it's more like, you know, spend your downtime to make some tea, and then, like, you can then, like, roll against a fear effect. That was from, man, I forget the, the game, but it, it had this nice artwork where, like, it had, like, this cute giant girl, and then there's, like, a little man riding on her shoulder, <laughs> and you could play as a giant. Fantasy Craft, yeah. They they made a spy game called Spycraft. So that game, they had food effects um, because they were just thinking of like out-of-party or out-of-combat things to do. Because D&D is hyper-focused on combat. Like, in tabletop, you can just abstract anything that... I mean, you can abstract combat, too, but um, if it's a video game, though, like, if you want cooking rules, then you have to write cooking rules. Yeah. I do remember in Baldur's Gate 2, uh, it wasn't a cooking system, but there is a troll cook that is a fairly memorable enemy that you face. Oh. What, yeah. what made them so memorable? Uh, his dialogue is very quippy and uh, irreverent. I feel like those Monkey Island-type games were a big influence on Baldur's Gate writing. Yeah, yeah, very, very quippy, snarky writing, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it had, kind of like the tone you guys were talking about before. You know, you you can't take Gandalf seriously if you like if you watch him explode because a kobold got a critical hit and then you restart <laughs> the game. Oh, uh, oh! Speaking of cooking and trolls, um, there's this there's a Warhammer fantasy goblin called Grom the Punch. His special rule is he regenerates like a troll because he he ate a troll, but the troll never fully digested, so it's a constant battle against the troll trying to regenerate in his stomach and his digestive system. But he's <laughs> absorbing its energy, too. So I was trying to find uh, if, if uh, someone had actually recorded the dialogue from the troll cook in Baldur's Gate. Uh, I didn't find it, but what I did find is that troll cook refers specifically uh, in D&D. Uh, it appears both in Forgotten Realms, uh as well as RuneScape and uh, others, that a troll cook is a specific uh, troll that specializes in cooking humans into delicious stews. Hmm. Okay. Well, that goes way back to, like, you know, Grimm's fairy tales or 
Yes. Now I'm really sad that uh, uh, some intrepid adventurer has not uh, recorded the the dialogue because I, I remember it being a fairly distinctive uh, difference between the other trolls uh, in the area. But um, yeah, uh, I'm I'm sure somebody's probably made a mod where like you can romance that specific troll folk and add in more dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, romancing was a big part of Baldur's Gate too, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, not, maybe not a big part, but a definitely. Oh no, part. it was definitely a big part. Um, did, did, like, it, it was like, I definitely use like fetish stuff. Like, like there's this like tortured, like skinny, winged elf who had her her wings torn off because Baldur's Gate can't handle a flying party member. Uh, <laughs> like, and like she's like this little doll that you can romance after nurturing her from this horrible abuse by carnies. And then there's, like, uh, the Dark Elf Lady, and her whole thing is, like, she... You, you can't romance her as an elf because she's in Dark Elf. Uh, and then her whole romantic lo- uh, plot is, like, by falling in love with you, like, she, she eventually... Alignment changes to good, but then she dies tragically but she has the chance to be reincarnated as a good light-skinned elf. <laughs> oh, man. They probably wouldn't write that like that exactly the same anymore. Yeah. <laughs> if you played as a female character in, in Baldur's Gate, could you romance that, that mentally handicapped bald guy? I, I don't know. Oh, uh, he's the ranger with a, a miniature space hamster. Oh, that guy's famous. That's that's one of the most yeah. famous characters, right? Yeah, yeah. He he speaks with low intelligence. I remember just thinking, like, man, like, I feel kind of bad having him as a party member because I'm not sure if he can, like, comprehend the danger he's actually in because of his childish mannerisms. Oh, his miniature space hamster actually ties into what we've seen in Baldur's Gate 3. Really? The Mind Flayers, the Illithids, they're from... They have spaceships. They have spell jammers. Like, they're yeah. magic spaceships for flashboard and adventures. And when Spelljammer came out, like, one of the things that you encounter in space are giant space hamsters. Ooh. So Baldur's Ooh. Gate missed the little hamster he has. When he calls it a miniature space hamster, it's, it's like for players in the know that, oh, it really could be a miniature spelljammer, a space hamster. Maybe something will come of it in a future plot. Who knows? Yeah. Oh man, I wonder if they're going to reference that in in the new game, uh, which is you know totally spelljammer. Like that 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 opening, that CG opening was really cool. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, that makes you wonder, like, um, will they have crewing a spelljammer be part of the story? Because Whoa. they have those. Uh, those aliens that don't have noses, or the Gith Yankee, I forget if they're Gith Yankee or Gith Arazi. Like there's, they look the same, but one's psychic and one's magic swordsman. But they're all about like uh, space empire, space combat, and fighting the mind flayers, and also fighting like the Beholder space empire, who might also be at war with the mind flayers because they're both evil tentacle monsters. Oh wait, so Beholders are also from space, or? I, I think so. Like I don't quite remember how the spelljammer setting actually worked, but beholders have like a lot of space stuff going on. And then in Forgotten Realms, like 
one of the elven kingdoms, they have, like, spell jammers, too, but they just never show up in the story because, I guess, the person who wrote Spelljammer didn't write, like, the stories that just take place on ground. Well, no, the Mind Flayers are, are cephalopods, but they're very, like, Lovecraftian, so they don't tend to come from water. They tend to come from the Great Unknown. Uh, yeah, like, like, so it's it's very space-faring in that way. Yeah. Um, from what I remember of Mind Flayers, they're kind of like, yeah, like how D&D, it's, it's really more like... Uh, it looks like Tolkien, but it then has, like, you know, pot people and all of those, like, funky space monster movies that are in black and white. Um, like, because the whole thing with Mind Flayers is uh, they put that little, uh, that tadpole in your brain, that tadpole takes over your body, and then that's the new Mind Flayer. And then all of the Mind Flayers are linked to a giant brain that is inside an underground pool. And they have to, like, uh, bring... I think they have to, like, actually drop brains into the pool to feed the, the big brain that, that is the big brain of all of them. Hmm. So do you, you think this... That might have... That sounds like that might have been a heavy influence for StarCraft for the hive mind in the way that the Zerg work. Granted, a hive mind isn't the most unique concept in the world, but uh, the way that yeah. you're discussing it, a lot of those, those mechanics are definitely uh, immediately reminded me of StarCraft. Actually, yeah, yeah, like Kerrigan is the, she's the Mind Flayer spawn that instead of turning totally loyal, she became independent. Like, Correct, uh, yeah. That's probably what's going to be an option in Baldur's Gate 3, like you can turn into like a tentacle superhero. Hmm, <laughs> that sounds awesome actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean Baldur's Gate 2 was about, uh, you're the, the bastard spawn of Ball. And you have like demon powers, but you can choose not to be demonic and use them for demon goodness. <laughs> demon goodness, what a concept! Yeah. Oh, um, oh yeah. With the spell jammers, though, like if if that's like going to be gameplay, then what's that going to be like? Will it be like assigning people to different battle stations? Oh man! Because uh, uh, huh. there's that. Was it a Dreamcast game, Skies of Arcadia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That one that had a uh, like, it had a uh, you know fighting with a sword, but also commanding your spaceship, or not your spaceship, but like your skyship. Like that was a good uh, mix-up. And then people oh. like you know Xenogears, you know you have your giant robot. You also have. Uh, was there any part of Xenogears where you could play as like the Yagdrasil? Uh, sort of, sort of, yeah. You could definitely fly it around. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'd like to interrupt uh, because I had gone on a quest while you were talking. I was able yeah. to locate some troll cook dialogue. Oh, I'd like nice. to read it to you now. All right. Yeah. So you, so uh, again, this is an enemy, but he'll talk to you. So you approach. Troll cook says, "Hello there, food thing. You're just in time. Please jump into the grill over there." Pardon me. The grill, the big metal thing. Jump on. Be careful. It's hot. Why? Well, Jesus, it's impossible to get good help nowadays. If you're not on the grill, how am I going to cook you? I don't want to be cooked. Well, then. <laughs> the, the, the combat encounter starts. Doesn't, doesn't that sound like, like somebody's fetish? Dialogue? <laughs> like, I, just reading it, like I heard it in Funky Kong's voice. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's some, some Vore content in uh, yeah, yeah. Baldur's Gate. 
I mean, like, if a troll swallows you and then because they can regenerate, they could get all big-bellied and, and then you could make $500 drawing that on the internet, <laughs> on your Patreon. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Patreon would definitely let you do that. Mark my words right now. Like, uh, when Baldur's Gate 3 comes out, there's going to be someone out there that's going to make, like, $1,000 a month on Patreon because he's going to draw every single weird fetish that will come from everyone's custom Baldur's Gate 3 character with their extra deleted scenes troll cook dialogue. Yeah. Well, you know, that is a, that's an important part of role-playing, right? People yeah. get to um, kind of explore uh, their own boundaries or really go, yeah. go past them and do it yeah. in a safe environment with, with good friends. No, seriously, and, uh, and even... Oh, go ahead. That's how, that's how Vampire beat D&D in the 90s. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. White Wolf leaned into that, huh? It's like you wanna you wanna come over and do a live action role play vampire. <laughs> like a lot of uh, there's there's somebody listening to this podcast now whose parents met because they live action role played vampire. They were born because of that game. <laughs> that's quite possible. <laughs> I was just I was just thinking like getting turned is uh, quite quite intimate and if you know it's not that hard to uh, act it out either. <laughs> yeah. Was it the character they demoed in the Butters Gate Three demo of Vampire? Yes, that's true. Absolutely. He he even had yeah. a line of dialogue about like seducing some dude to like bring back to his master. Oh yeah, yeah that's, that's right. You could uh, you could roll intelligence to see how well his daydreaming helped him go to sleep. Yeah, that was a nice touch. I, I liked that. Yeah, yeah, I like that the dialogue options have so much character to them. Or, I, I mean, not dialogue, but just the, the the there's like an internal monologue and yeah. So the the dialogue I, I want to talk about actually, because if if you go back to the, I think a lot of people don't really register this on their radar that the original Baldur's Gate was by Bioware. And yes. If you look at the yeah. the the legacy of Bioware, what they're really really good at is dialogue and and even like relationships i think you could see now, now that i'm thinking that i never made the connection but obviously the relationship stuff that they did in butter's gate translated directly to it showing up in dragon age and mass effect oh absolutely and whatnot. yeah i like to um half joke half serious though like i i i think the bioware games are just like they're like otome games with like a huge rpg attached to them like they're they're really good dating sims right <laughs> I, I think no, yeah, seriously, yeah. I, I think that's what uh, people really really remember about them. I I remember a yeah. friend of mine. He played uh, Knights of the Old Republic, right? And he got all the way to the end. Uh, this was in college, and um, I, I think uh, I don't know. Spoiler alert: If anyone hasn't played the game, I, I, at the end, your 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 Jedi uh, partner, who's like a lady, like you know, she's like gonna turn to the dark side, but like you you can stop it with the power of love if you say like I love you to her and my friend was like I'm not gonna not gonna do this I'm not gonna have a video game person be the first person that I say this to in my life <laughs> so he, he let her turn he's very very cold hearted uh, so you're, you're actually now that you're you're mentioning Star Wars I've been playing uh, Star Wars The Old Republic recently uh, and I've been playing through the, the Knights of the Fallen Empire Knights of the Eternal Throne and there are a number of love interests, and uh, I have two playthroughs, uh, one where I've done it with two different characters, and I will make terrible decisions 
on behalf of the character in order to continue my love story or to prioritize the person that I'm dating. So it's very real. Like, uh, there's a thing in the... Uh, again, if, mini spoilers, but not full spoilers if you haven't played Knights of the Fallen Empire. Yeah. But there's a thing where you, you often are given a choice to use dark power. And normally, like, I, I'm one of those, I play it very... Uh, very Paragon, very light side, which um, yeah. recently came out that like 90% of players play it that way. But oh. either way, uh, I can get it out in a second. But basically, I was like, oh, I'm going to totally play it light side. And there's a thing where like, you could use this power to save her. And I was like, hell yeah. Kill them. Yeah, <laughs> use the darkness. I'm totally dark side right now. So yeah. I, I, it's interesting how, how quickly you do get into that element, even though it's only a portion of the game. So I think you're totally right on. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, uh, recently a uh, one of the Bioware developers mentioned on Twitter that the data shows that uh, something like 92% of all players uh, played Mass Effect as a Paragon. Uh, like he's like, why do we work on all this Renegade content when you guys are not going to play it that way? Apparently, mm -hmm. a lot of people, even if they decide to go Renegade, they still don't quite lean into it because they're like they don't want to be a dick to people. Yeah. Uh, so like they'll they'll even intend to do a, a Renegade playthrough. And will still end up being a nice guy or a girl. Yeah, I think that speaks to the effectiveness of uh, the games, right? Then they, yeah. they feel like they have an actual relationship. You know, I, and I, I think this also speaks to the evolution of uh, these very open games. Like, I, I remember when the original Grand Theft Auto, not the original, the uh, first one for PS2 came out. Yeah, and, and yeah, before that, the graphics were very, like, abstracted. Um, and then suddenly it was a little more robust like kind of uh, Shenmue would come out like you know now you, you could really like full 3D walk in front of people and I remember everyone was so excited like to, to just go around killing innocent people and I was just like huh that's uh never really fantasized about that but yeah sure go ahead have fun. you know it's actually pretty weird that you say that is this the original Grand Theft Auto was top down and it was pretty much all about doing that and even though a big part of Grand Theft Auto well, it's one of the bigger franchises in the world it's still about that, but I don't know if you've noticed, like, over time, they've added a lot of narrative and character yes. into it, yeah. and a lot of relationships, yeah. because, like, like so it's much more now a narrative game than it is about just running around a city and, you know, doing whatever the yeah, hell you want. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I'm getting at, is um, the, the original one was, you know, just very simple, like, it didn't have, like, a super complex story. You'd go on a rampage, and you wouldn't be punished for it, like, a minute later. Um, so, yeah, people would go around and just... You know, be a dick and kill people and, you know, see how much uh, mayhem you could commit. But, you know, now, like, uh, even from Rockstar, like, Red Dead Redemption uh, is a more persistent world. It does have, like, uh, more robust writing and relationships. And, you know, it's, it's much harder to, to be evil in a game like that where um, you feel more connected to the world and the people. And I, I, yeah. I think that's why Bioware games, people don't choose to be evil as often. In Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, could you just kill all the uh, townspeople? I forget. Yeah, yeah, I think um, it was a game where you could do things like that. I, I think it was influenced by uh, Fallout, you know? Oh, right, yeah. Um, I remember in Fallout 1, like, I was just riding on the, the bus in middle school, and my friend was playing Fallout 1, and he's like, man, like, you know that town with the thieving thieving dwarves like I tried fighting them but then like everyone attacked me I was like well there's no dwarves in Fallout that was a child you shot a child that's why they attacked you 
you mentioned like the vampire in Baldur's Gate 3 uses uh, like they do some kind of trek for daydreaming to seduce someone but it's okay. like using a mechanic to see if something works oh well it's specifically referring to Baldur's Gate 3 it was two different things one was when the guy was just thinking about what he had been doing uh, before he got caught up with the crazy illithids and everything so he's just reminiscing um, and then um, but that was like a, a mechanical thing, like a role was made? Well, okay, so uh, he he was also just thinking about, so in that part, he was saying, oh, you know, he was um, in the middle yeah. of seducing some random guy uh, to bring back to his master, because, you know, he's like a thrall to this vampire. Um, and then yeah. there's another part where he's trying to fall asleep. One of your options is to think about, like, yeah, fantasize about, like, killing your, your master, um, and then um, I think you actually do a roll, and if you succeed, uh, which I don't think you have to roll very high for, then he, you know, he he relaxes and he's able to um, get some rest. That's oh, yeah, that's part, right? Yeah, that's the campfire part where he's like, he's like, ah, oh, you imagine your master burning into, into flames, and he's like, ah, and yeah. falls asleep. Yeah, like what we do in the shadows, like that's what real D and D is. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I actually get that sense a lot from uh, Taika Waititi's films. I, I'm yeah. sure that guy played D&D. Probably a lot of... it, like, Australia is weird. Uh, New Zealand. What? Oh. <laughs> that, is, that is the worst mistake to make, calling New Zealander oh. an Australian. <laughs> Wait. Especially because he directed a lot of Flight of the Concords, where that is a... It's one of the first times I think I saw um, Aziz Ansari in a role, where he's the racist oh. fruit seller. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Brown yeah. delicious. Yeah. Oh. They wanted a red delicious, and he said he would but, give them a, a brown delicious to their face. But I'm sure that uh, Taika Waititi's probably had, like, a run-in with, like, Australian orcs before. <laughs> Speaking of things like, oh, you know, make a roll to daydream nicely, like, that is nice. I, uh, there are games where you do things like that. Uh, that tends to be in, uh, it was in uh, Japanese tabletop RPGs usually have uh, pretty nicely made uh, out-of-combat rules because they, a lot of them are kind of modeled after, like, how can you do, like, a chapter of manga? So an example of, um, there's this uh, series called a D66. There, it's a Japanese um, RPG series, tabletop. And um, the usual way they pace things, like, uh, they have a game called Hunter's Moon, where... They're like hunting a monster, but there's this uh, out of combat phase where you each all can do one action, and it could be something like I'm going to, you know, go train, which will give me a bonus to fight the monster. But it can also be things like I'm going to, you know, think about like, uh, yeah, like you know, even daydream about killing my master, or like think about like my loved ones, and that will give you like a bonus to some psychological effect or remove, like, a stress token that would give you a penalty. So that makes me think that Baldur's Gate 3 will probably incorporate that sort of thing into, as we were talking about, like, a camping mode, where you can choose to have the vampire daydream or have him, like, stay up all night and keep watch. A trade-off. And then, oh, just a quick tangent, but, like, there are rules for this kind of, like, diplomacy and so on in D&D that if you play it straight, like, a lot of really funny things happen like you know what if i have to make a 
like I want to seduce the princess. So how do I lower her de- her defense against my seduction? Like, oh, um, maybe if she has like food poisoning or or if she's like really tired. So if you poison the princess, then the chances of her falling in love with you increase because the role will have less of a number to overcome. Yeah. So I wanted I wanted to we, we were talking about uh, Bioware. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, when I was, uh, you know, re- reliving and going back and in, uh, in kind of preparation once we were, we were talking about doing the podcast about it and just watching the demo. I went back and kind of looked at this and there, there's, as we've uh, talked about in previous podcasts, there's always like a weird, uh, interesting relationship between different studios that work on these things. So uh, a fun fact is this is not the first time that they've attempted to make a Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, There was one in 2002, and here's what's pretty interesting. The staff members that worked on that, it was was canceled, but they left and they became Obsidian. And they worked on Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, The Sith Lords, and Neverwinter Nights 2. Which then eventually led them to making things like Fallout New Vegas, which obviously if you you go all the way back, you look at, there's a lot of D&D influences in the way that the Fallout games work. Yeah. Uh, and then they eventually went back and they made things like the South Park Stick of Truth and whatever. But then they kickstarted. We were just talking about campfires, and they, that led them to make Pillars of Eternity. Uh, you know, so they kind of uh, like went back and forth with their D and D roots constantly. And the latest game they made, uh, which I would recommend to everybody, is The Outer Worlds, where you can see like this very interesting combination of uh, the kind of Fallout New Vegas D and D influences. Uh, but it's all, it's, it's interesting to me how it's all kind of rolls back and gets connected into like Star Wars and uh, into the Fog games and the Neverwinter Nights and whatnot. Wait, the uh, Outer Worlds, is that like, do you have a, like a sci-fi space setting? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you do eventually get a spaceship, yes. Is there gameplay with this, with this ship? I haven't played enough of it to remember. Uh, this is also not to be confused with the Outer Wilds, which is... Uh, also a cool spaceship game, but a very different type of game. Oh, really? I thought that was like a, a Tom Clancy game. Or is that uh, no, I don't believe it is. Okay, there's some Tom Clancy wild something. I think you're thinking of Wildlands. Like Outer Outer Wilds is like a, uh, and it's kind of like a interesting adventure game. Uh, you you like on a planet, and uh, you have like 20, 22 or twenty five minutes before. The sun goes supernova and kills you, and you die. It's just it's one of those things where you constantly have to work back through what you know. And there is like an ending and everything, but it's all it's a very roguelike in that way, and that it's a, a thing where you you're it's all about constantly dying and learning and uh, taking your spaceship and doing different things before uh, you die each time. Okay, cool. Both very um, cool games. Just uh, I don't know if that one's really related to D and D as much as it's just a very similar game that are both spacefaring games that have very yeah. similar titles. So in the like seventies D and D, like you do just, you know, Oh, my character is dead. Well, his, his cousin just rolled up and he's got the same stats and I will learn from my previous character's death. <laughs> That's how they handled like continues basically. Uh. Although I will say that the outer wilds begins with you around a campfire on a planet and even the game's cover and poster have you sitting by a campfire? Yeah. Was it Kickstarter, oh. perchance? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. <laughs> Probably was. Yeah. Well, oh, we'll see. Oh, you know, 
You ever seen those videos of like when they have a fire in like the in zero gravity, what it looks like? No. It's round because like the heat just radiates in all directions. That makes intuitive sense to me. That also makes me think, you know, like in space you could you could make a muffin that is all top. <laughs> <laughs> like I think if NASA just starts making those, they could probably fund a lot more trips, just sell them to millionaires. Space bread. Yeah. Like here's a a ball of loaf. Sounds great. <laughs> You probably can't do this due to ethics and so on, but like, imagine like what kind of fog wall you could get from a duck that has never known gravity. <laughs> Dude, oh my God! Imagine space field. I feel like all that's eventually going to happen at some point. You know, well, not in our lifetime, but eventually. Couldn't you just eat like a baby manatee for something close? <laughs> that's a, yeah, that might be pretty. That might simulate the weightlessness space yeah 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 i mean like if you look at you know eating fish like their meat falls apart apart like so much easier like like they're just a lot more delicate because they don't need to touch things i mean that's why sharks they don't have like large fangs because everything they're eating is is pretty soft <laughs> that's that's true yeah <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, megalodons had had large fangs but that's because f- fish used to have uh, they're skeletons on the outside, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, those things, weren't they eating whales? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Killer whales still have big teeth because they're eating penguins. Yeah, and seals. Heard they don't eat people because they recognize the limbs are just, the, the bones there are going to be way too long for, compared to anything they eat and they might choke. Wow. That's, that's some real intelligence there, yeah. Yeah, they're they're pretty smart. I mean, they can't make a campfire, but yeah, pretty smart. You know, in uh, in D and D, a killer whale is about gives you as much experience points as killing a hydra. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm trying to imagine fighting a killer whale in real life. Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine that would go well. What are, What are the stats for, like, say, a, a grizzly bear? Like the, the largest uh, land predator. I know third edition best. Um, grizzly bears are like, they're like, I think they're stronger than ogres. Okay. Um, but it's not like the most difficult thing to kill. Um, no, it's, it's not intelligent. Can't, you the know, last time I armor. played Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, like, I built a Minotaur, and because uh, AD&D is just like super swingy, but the characters are really fast to make. So I was just betting on, like, like uh, yeah, we were attacked by a bear, and I figured, well, I can either deal enough damage to kill this bear in one charge because I'm a minotaur and I can hit with my horns and with my axe, but then if the, the bear counterattacks, like, I'll be torn in half. Uh, my minotaur got torn in half because I missed. Aw. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a... Uh... There's a thing in uh, Dragon Age Inquisition. It's it's not a cheat, but there's things you can turn on, like little challenge things where it makes the game harder, but you get like tons of extra loot and experience. And there's one where you can make the, all of the bears that appear in the game just like impossibly high health and damage. Oh uh, really? Yeah, and they and there's a couple things where you're like you'll be like this badass dragon slayer, and then you'll fight yeah. a grizzly bear and it'll kill you in one hit. 
dude, were, yeah. were they kind of riffing on um, on on uh, Skyrim, where where uh, because of the the scaling, right? I think the enemies kind of scale with your level a little bit. I yeah. heard the um, if you're if you're really I forget if it was really high level or low level, but the the bears. Uh, I think if you're high level, the bears are stronger than a dragon. I think what it was is in Skyrim, um, the common enemies scale with you, but then like named characters or some something like for some reason the dragons don't scale. So yeah, somebody yeah. made this video of just this dragon being like locked in combat with a bear that eventually kills it with boss fights. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if it was riffing, but that sounds pretty likely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Grizzly bears and owl bears, like, they have pretty much the same stats, so there's really no reason to have an owl bear. It's the same thing as a grizzly bear. <laughs> it just looks different. I, I remember hearing that in the first editions of D&D, you could, like, you could be killed by a house cat. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it's because of just how hit points work. I mean, uh, since third edition onward, like people usually start with like over five hit points, but before that, like people would like to roll. So you could be like, you know, I want to play as Conan. Oh, you rolled one for your hit points. <laughs> um, and then it's because the cat is small, which makes it hard to hit, and it has a high dexterity, which makes it more accurate. And then, like, minimum damage is one, so it's going to be dealing one damage anyways. <laughs> like, uh, a joke is, like, you know, if you have, like, a crazy cat lady who, you know, in real life, they can have, like, a hundred cats in one house. Yeah. Like, in D&D terms, that would be enough cats to, like, annihilate any orcs that attack the village. <laughs> So speaking of uh, cats, I just wanted to mention, uh, just because when I think of video games and cats, I think of this now. So recently I was trying out uh, Elder Scrolls Online because we're talking about Skyrim. And I, I uh, entered playing in the new expansion uh, where the, they have the cat people, the Khajiit. And yeah. one of the first quests you get, uh, you deal with this guy that's a Khajiit, and then you go into his house. But he's also got a bunch of regular house cats. But he's a, he's a cat as well. And then he sends yep. you on this quest to go find his, you know, what you believe is his daughter. And it turns out it's just one of his regular cats. And oh. for, there's something about it that I couldn't get past. Like, I was just, like, stopped in playing the game. And I was just like, so he's a cat, but he has house cats that are cats. And he he forsake his daughter for one of his house cats, but his daughter's a Khajiit cat. And it's just, uh, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't square the the fantasy rules of that. I I couldn't I couldn't quite understand how it worked. What's the rules? <laughs> I mean, in in D and D, like don't gnolls are hyena people, right? And yeah, do they have? I don't know if they have hyenas in like a like a Western setting in D and D. I don't know. There's, but then like I like bears just appear in all of the woods in D and D. No that's true like, yeah there's no grizz grizzlies in and they they like to you know dwarves are stout and hairy so they like to give them pet badgers on it and then if you're fighting like uh in dragonlance the dragons were able in dragonlance like the dragons make dragon mid people minions where they corrupt some dragon eggs and then a bunch of dragon headed people pop out of them oh, so dear. i think it's like if you're evil then 
your minions and the boss will all have the same head, even if they're on four legs. But yeah. if you're good, then it's played for laughs. Like, would that scene be less weird if it was a human in a house full of monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> Something I wanted to ask about or, or just speculate about is, uh, it's interesting that most of the big D&D-based games, uh, like Pools of Radiance, Eye of the Beholder, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, Neverwinter Nights, yeah. Uh, they're all based in Forgotten Realms. Yeah, that was the whole... I mean, that's where Drizzt lives. I mean, uh, it's it's been around since, like, the 1960s, right? Because d d started in, like, the 70s. Uh, I I don't know when Forgotten Realms started, though. Uh, was it the 80s? Because uh, it, think... it predates, it predates like... Uh, it predates Pool of Radiance, which was 1988, and yeah. uh, I believe it even predates the Salvatore books, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It already existed, um, and he, he really fleshed it out. I think the first kind of consistent D&D setting was uh, Greyhawk. That's where that um, Dracula dude, Ravenloft stuff is. Like, uh, Greyhawk was where you could, um, you know, play in an official, you know, send your character sheets and rules and turn like your actions by mail to like the official Greyhawk campaign setting and they keep track of like it was like playing uh by mail what wow you can yeah. mail it oh interesting um i don't know exactly how this works though like i haven't looked it up i could be wrong but like people did play by mail because people already played board games and chess by mail Greyhawk was famous for running on the logic of uh like the old Gygax D&D where you are, the amount of gold you get is uh, how much experience you get. So like after killing the vampire lord, you would proceed to go, how much is his furniture worth? And then you calculate that value in gold pieces and then you level up based on like how nicely decorated the castle was. <laughs> but it was also like in a good way encouraging you to not just like, you know, destroy everything or like, you know, like collapse everything because in a way it made sense like even in the conan novels like he's he's fighting because he wants wealth to go spend on things yeah those pulp adventures were always about treasure hunting and even in real life like the vikings you know they go beat up irish monks because they're trying to find value they're not just going to kill people for no reason yeah that's true actually in in real life obviously you don't just level up by killing something yeah, because then the loophole in D&D would be like, well, if a bear is, like, as strong as an ogre, then anyone who's, like, hunted a bear, like, regularly would have gained a massive amount of experience points. Um, but yeah, actually, I mentioned this in one of our first podcasts, but, like, I looked up, like, there's, like, this real-life, like, cop in New York that's, like, shot over a hundred dogs which in D&D terms would make him, like, level 5 already. <laughs> oh, God. This dude's just known for, like, shooting dogs? I was just looking up, like, how often do dogs get shot in America? And I just looked something up, and it was like, wow, like, if if your dog is, like, barking loudly, then, and the police, like, entered your property, then it's like, they can say, I was threatened by your dog, and that justifies it. So, uh, it was like, turn it, or go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go. Oh, I was going to turn our attention a little bit to the the art style. I was 
I was noticing uh, and thinking about all these games that it seems like the the isometric camera angle and uh, kind of sprites on pre-rendered backgrounds uh, was a, has been a huge part of D&D and video games. And there hasn't been much deviation from that. And I'm, I was wondering kind of out loud, like, why that is. Well, I mean, that's kind of angle of, like, looking down at the table with full of miniatures. That is, it's just, it's like a easy way for a human to process that information. You're looking down at a map. You know, you're looking at your attack angles. You're measuring distance. Huh. Yeah, there's, uh, there's really just good. like a there's a tidiness to it that's very inviting, right? Yeah, yeah. just the whole I, uh, tabletop uh, view. I I remember uh, early on uh, when I was first started getting into like just making my own games and working in like RPG Maker and stuff like that. Uh, I was playing with uh, whether or not to make um, like like the isometric versus others, and I learned that there's kind of two main ways to do it. There's the classic isometric, and then there's also exonometric. And uh, what's interesting about isometric specifically, a lot of people use it to mean the top down angle, the top angled down, but it actually means an yeah. equal 45 degree angle every way. So it mm -hmm. doesn't, yeah. it doesn't actually use perspective. Uh, so yeah. it's a super yeah. interesting way to look at it that doesn't actually exist in reality. A lot of Super Nintendo games like uh, Zelda, it's impossible angles to show you like four walls and you can see all four walls from a top-down view uh, but we accept it it's it's kind of like uh when you look at like artwork from you know 1000 ad like in europe and china and so on uh, you might have a building where you see like three angles in ways that show detail that's impossible because it was like you know photography didn't exist then they weren't interested in depicting reality they're interested in depicting information and idea and um there's some like uh, chinese landscape paintings with impossible angles around cliffs and so on because they were built to be like a a game stage your eyes wander through the path experiencing it as if you're playing like a very gentle mario where you can't die except for the ones where like it depicts hell, so you're supposed to look at all the suffering as you walk around. Like they say, uh, at least in China, it'd be like a scholar might collect these, almost like playing a game in that, you know, they're walking through different stages, they're walking through different vacation lands, and they might like look at it and then, you know, feel relaxed and then go about their day. Yeah, that's that's, that's good good insight. Yeah, these these old uh, landscapes. I mean, they were they were there to, you know, spark the imagination and make you feel uh, placed in that yeah. environment. Remember the the Goya Super Nintendo games, like they had towns, like a walking around town stage. And like years later, I'm looking at like Edo period, you know, map of Edo. And it's like, oh my God, this is, this is the Goyamon stage layout. They <laughs> put it in a video game and it just fit perfectly. Yeah, translates perfectly. That people always have this this desire, right? This wanderlust, yeah. Yeah. manifests through different things. Oh no, I was I was gonna say more. Um, I I had heard that originally a lot of uh, the kind of projections of levels was originally like a resource constraint of uh, game like game systems, but I actually don't know if I believe that. The more that we're talking about it, uh, the thing you mentioned yeah. as well is I remember they they have a lot of really iconic maps of 
San Francisco if you ever ever go to the Argonaut Museum. Mm-hmm. And all of the yeah. most famous ones are, uh, they're kind of like isometric and, or, and they look like a video game level because Market Street diagonally bisects the city. Uh, it's a really weird choice if you think about it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense based on the history of the port. But uh, I always I always thought uh, first time in the in the uh, museum looking at it that I was like wow this looks like it would be a really fun setting for a D and D campaign like independent of the actual setting just the layout of the city and the way that it feels when you look at it in that view. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of like how Shadowrun got created is most of it takes place in Seattle because the people making the game like we're all from Seattle and they're like let's just play in sci-fi fantasy Seattle. And like use our information that we already have of Seattle. Oh, that's like, cool idea. Uh, I've never been to Seattle, but I hear like, oh, Redmond. In real life, like that's where the Nintendo office is. But in Shadowrun, that's like where the Orch Ghetto is. I uh, played uh, pretty recently. I'm blanking on uh, the Ubisoft game uh, that um, has like hackers and stuff like that. Why am I blanking on the name? Um, you know the, uh, Watch Dogs? Yeah, 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 Watch Dogs. So yeah. uh, Watch Dogs 2 takes place in San Francisco. And yeah. uh, I was pretty excited because at the time I was living in San Francisco. And uh, I basically, I bought the game and I played through it. And Rachel was sitting there with me. And instead of playing the game, we basically just went down to like uh, the, you know, down to the Embarcadero. And then we just started like hitting people and hacking people around uh, the ferry building. <laughs> uh, which was like pretty realistically realized, and then oh. uh, I realized that I spent like three hours just going to places that I recognized in the game. Actually, that is kind of also how D and D started. It was like you know we have these cutaway maps of like real historic castles. We have this you know literature on like this siege. We have like this war game about like these real campaigns of the War of the Roses and so on. Why not not just like read about it, but role play as a character in it, and then continue after. Um, and the uh, do you guys remember those books that used to do the insane cutaways of like, like yeah. the Titanic and stuff like that? Like, oh, oh heck yeah, cool. yeah. I, I I I picked up one of those last time I was in the U.S. Uh, to bring back for my niece. She loves it. Didn't they have a, a version that had castles and stuff like old medieval castles? Yeah, yes. there's a bunch yes. of those. Yeah. Those were great. There's like a specific artist that's famous for them. I should try to remember the name. Um, yeah, th- those but, books uh, are beautiful. Like Sean, you're a Suikoden expert. The castle building in that was it like room by room? Like, did you have the whole castle to look at? Uh, so you could go to basically every room in the castle, but the the castle building in in Shikoden is very uh, organic. Like so. Um, at, there's like two levels of it uh there are actually three now that i think about it but the, the first like what i mean by levels is not not the amount of times that it can change but like on one hand the castle is scaling based on how big your arm is becoming so you recruit certain people and so some of them are just a character some of them uh they add something to your castle so like when you recruit one of the ninja guys uh, a dojo just shows up as part of your castle oh, now nice. um but then there's also the uh, certain guys that you get or, or girls are generals, so they come along with um, more military. So the actual size of your headquarters gets bigger. But uh, you don't actually customize per room, 
but you kind of definitely feel the the impact. So like, so you'll notice as you're going up to the levels uh, of the castle that you'll have like a path that goes off and it's just dirt. And then once you you come back, you know, a couple hundred people later, it'll be paved and it'll go to like a library and a tower. And uh, what's really great about it is you can really explore it. And there are some areas of the castle that have nothing to do with anything. They're just there. There's just like a nice yeah. garden area. Uh, you can just go uh, hang out in the tower. And like, so, like you can pretty much find any one of the 108 stars of destiny hanging out in places that make sense for them. Uh, but they don't really say anything substantial to you. So it's, it's a thing where you can just absolutely get lost in your own castle. And then on the world map, you can see it scaling out. I've actually had times where I was coming back from the world map and I was like, hey, where's that thing? Uh, I didn't notice that before on my headquarters. I want to go check that out. So you could actually see a new area on the mini-map. So. Nice. Yeah. Uh, that kind of organic growth and then like things changing as the story goes on. That's always pleasant. Well, one, of, one of the things that uh, I really enjoyed, uh, they have a couple of weird proxies for progress. Um, and also the, the castle in Shukoden, uh, unfortunately you got me onto this topic and I can talk forever about it, but uh, on the, the kind of the, the east side, they have a lot of like built-in mini games as well. So there's like, uh, you, you can kind of proxy your progress in the castle to certain elements. So like the cooking area has a, has a uh, basically like an Iron Chef mini game. Uh, yeah. and there's actually a whole story playing out. And every time you enter the kitchen, it starts off with like, it, it starts growing and then once you get a chef, it starts having a menu, and then he gets challenged by other chefs, and there's like a whole uh, storyline with the group of of, uh, of chefs that he came from, and he'd stolen a secret recipe. And then separately, there's also like a guy that you can hire that's really into making baths. <laughs> I, I feel yeah. like at some point, not on, maybe not on the podcast, but we talked about the importance of baths, but uh, there's a real oh, proxy yeah, in the know. game for how ni- nice your bath gets. <laughs> Yeah, actually, we've talked about this more than once. Like, well, today, like, I was like, oh, you know, a Mario game where Mario can wash his tired feet, and that's Death Stranding. Uh, and then before, like, one, I wonder, I don't remember when I said this, but Azur Dreams, that's the uh, monster catching game where you can, like, spend money to improve your town. And then we, you... we talked about it in a previous podcast, yeah. Yeah, like, you start off, like, your poverty bath is just a heated oil drum. But then, like, after you make lots of money selling monster eggs, you can have, like, a jacuzzi with, like, Atlantean sculpture and, like, hot water flowing out of a lion's mouth. Ah, yes, yes, we did talk about this. (laughs) Yeah. What I also, and I don't know if I mentioned it last time, so I'll be repeating myself, but I also enjoyed, like, there's stuff in that game where you would go take a bath and you can get the status toasty, and you have, like, you know, you have, like, you get you turn, like, a little red and you have a little smoke, and there's certain characters that you you can recruit, and they won't talk to you, but then they'll, like, but wait a minute, they'll, they'll notice, they're like, wow, you look so young and refreshed, uh, <laughs> like you enjoy a good bath. <laughs> I'll come join your army, a man that enjoys a good bath. That's a man you can trust. <laughs> that, I'm sure. I feel like that's weird enough to actually be like a historic Sukoden novel story. Yeah, maybe they pulled that from like some obscure yeah. part of Three Kingdoms or, or Sukoden or yeah. So then that makes me wonder, like, 
Well, Baldur's Gate 3 have bathing? Oh. Well, do you, I mean, so it, it has the camp. But can, can you level, can you, do you think you'll be able to level up your camp or have a more permanent uh, base? They, they seem to indicate when they were talking about it that it would be kind of like a, a, a thing that scaled out and became more of a camp and... Uh, I don't know, very akin to the way that a lot of ARPGs like uh, like Diablo and uh, Path of Exile treat the town, except maybe in this case you're building out your own. They have the Spelljammer, it could be your ship, like Skies of Arcadia or like Fall Fantasy VI. Well, yeah, and, and uh, Mass Effect, right? I mean, that's, oh, you know... No. Oh, Bio, yeah, yeah. Bioware had... That, that's their most recent hit. That, that's very spaceship-oriented, and... Um, you know, I think they're going to be very aware of the legacy of not just not just uh, Baldur's Gate, but but Bioware in general when when they're going into this game. They they actually have this in the in the old uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic uh, newest expansion as well. Like you kind of like uh, many spoilers, uh, you kind of become the leader of this. It's the, it's they don't call it the Resistance; they call it like the Alliance or something. But you definitely get like a base. Uh, yeah, there's, I don't know. There's a, a long interesting history of the idea of the mechanic of giving you uh, a base didn't didn't metal gear have a really good base system too yeah oh, dude, yeah 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 heck yeah uh, what is it that's so satisfying about having like this own your own like even in all these games like they don't give you that many ways to customize it and yet it yeah. feels so yours when you're playing these games well it's like uh like if you draw a circle on the ground then then cats are compelled to sit in it and I'm pretty sure people would be too. <laughs> like, if I put a circle on the ground in the woods, people are more likely to build a campfire in the circle than next to it. It's like just this feeling of safety. Interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. You're right. Definitely, uh, cats are compelled to sit in squares or circles. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I really like games where even if it's not customizable, like, did you play Act Razor 2? I think I played the first one. I don't. Actraiser, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, having yeah. like nostalgic pangs from it, but I'm not remembering anything about the game. Yeah. Well, like in the first one, you're saving towns, so like you get to see like the demon haunted woods turn into a peaceful village. In Actraiser Two, you're you have this floating like Olympian castle in the sky, and that's your base of operations. That's where you get like the password to continue the game, and that's where you talk with your angel minions that are all like. They're all, like, really nice secretaries. And the way you move around in that game, it's, a, it's like you have the overworld map, and you move the sky castle around. And then, like, once you enter a level, it's like the sky castle descends, and then you, you inhabit a statue in the area to go fight. So it's like a... And, like, very peaceful music plays. It was a really hard game, so that was, like, the most peaceful part of the game. It's you know, a place of safety. But then at the very end of the game, like, uh, the evil demon god who comes back, like, the only way to stop him is uh, to break through his magic barrier, and your very kind angel secretaries tell you, well, the only weapon we have powerful enough to do that is to drop our castle on top of it. Wow. And then you, you have to say your goodbyes to everyone because their life is tied to the castle. Oh, wow. And the, the final level of the game is it's the last boss's lair mixed with the ruins of your home. Yeah, that was very powerful. You were really emotionally invested in it at that point. Well, the, yeah. 
the very nice angel who saves your game, like, you get to see him, like, in the last level, dying, giving his final words, and then getting killed by one of the boss monsters. He shoots a laser at him, right? Uh, that reminds me as well. Reminds me as well. Uh, you treat the Yggdrasil in Xenogears as kind of a base as well. And you also, yeah. if I recall, end up ramming it into something and blowing it up. So Yeah, you're right. It's it's like tearing a, a part of you away that you have to use your home to to win. I have the feeling that if you do have a spell jammer that you can customize, then one of the endings is crashing it into the big evil brain that put the tadpole in your head. I mean, they do. They they are at this point. Larian Studios is jokingly well known for starting their games off with a shipwreck of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a great premise. Yeah, very classic. Sean, did you ever look at the tabletop RPG Rifts? Uh, I did not. I didn't play much of it, but um, one of the really fascinating things with it that gripped me as like a ten-year-old was. You could get like this like all-terrain vehicle and that would be your mobile base and then you could upgrade it to like you know like a a mobile home except it has laser turrets <laughs> which all mobile homes should have i think yeah wow, that was like the, the thing that really stood out to me it was just like wow i can live in a live in a laser car and <laughs> be like a robot man yeah every every young person's fantasy really I mean, like, in any of the Fallout games, can you just drive a car through the wasteland like Mad Max? Do you get vehicles in Fallout? I'm blanking on that. Yeah, me too. I only remember, like, walking, and then there's helicopters. That's all I see. I remember in Fallout 4, yeah, there's, like, giant ships and a bunch of nonsense like that, but I don't know if you could pilot them. Um, I'm really not remembering. I mean, like, looking at one of the greatest movies of all time, uh... Mad Max Fury Road, like, the beginning of the movie is Max in his car being chased down. Yeah. And later on yeah. in the movie, like, the guys who beat him up and took his car, like, they're driving his car now. And he's just yelling, that's my car! And you feel it. <laughs> yeah, you feel his rage. I um, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think the Fallout games uh, have, like, a system for vehicles. I think, yeah. um, but that's something that, again, uh, Mass Effect had, you, you did have, like, a, a wheeled vehicle, um, even the in, in the first one, yeah. So, yeah. And that, that, that was something that stood out about it, because, uh, yeah, um, that was when everything was uh, heavily trending to open world, but not not every game had everything, right? So that, that was, yeah. like, a, a significant step to have that in, a, in an RPG, you know? I really you enjoyed know, the rocket jets on the Mako. Yeah, just... Thinking, just... Um, a lot of people, like, when you look at the Final Fantasy series, like, having the airship as your base of operations was, like, a really special feeling. And when the later ones didn't have that is when uh, when you saw more online complaints of, this isn't Final Fantasy anymore. I think <laughs> it's, like, when they say, like, it doesn't feel like Final Fantasy anymore, it's, they don't have that, you know that circle in the dirt that they can sit in. That's, that's true. People often complain the games became just long corridors to walk down, you know, as yeah. opposed to these, like, comforting places that you come back to. But yeah. There was a... Which one was... There was one that really did feel like a super linear court. Like, weren't you, like, literally going down a, a giant tunnel the whole time? Um, Fantasy 13 had a mini-map 
that just showed you like, wow, this is just a really long chord. I felt if it didn't have the mini-map, though, it would be less obvious because it was a really pretty game. I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't actually think that until someone told me. They're like, oh, it's just a big, long corridor. And I was like, oh, I guess so. But, but it's I'm walking through this magical woods where there's like behemoths wearing jean shorts. And I'm just like really fascinated by why they're wearing pants. <laughs> but a detail like that in Final Fantasy XIII showed that like there's no difference between nature and magic and science because the monsters really can just like walk around in pants naturally. It's just how the world is. That, it's, yeah. it's like uh, how the ancient Greeks would go, oh, on this island, this is where you'll find the dog people that like hold things in their human hands and wear clothing. You just accept it. <laughs> yeah, it is a world where things are just made, right? They don't necessarily evolve naturally. Yeah, like everything is a servant of a god. Um, I, I want to go back for a sec just uh, to the roots of um, Bioware. Did, did you know that Bioware is a house of learned doctors? No. Oh, I mean, that makes a little bit of sense with the name now, but I didn't yeah, know that. Um, the founders, um, uh, I think two, two of the founders were, um, they met in medical school. And uh, when they made their first game, they were still practicing medicine. I, I think they, were, they had their own practices. Um, oh, wow. So they funded their game company uh, because they were already like doctors. Um, and their, their very first game, I think, was like sort of a, a first person shooting game that was like uh, Mech Warrior inspired. And um, yeah, uh, Shattered Steel, right? Yeah, yeah, Shattered Steel. Shattered Steel, yeah. Oh. yeah. And it had um, s sort of destructible environments. Like your, your, your weapons could affect the environment, which is. You know, again, like decades later, later something that um, that uh, uh, what divinity, you know, is known for, yeah. right? Like, yeah. So it's 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 interesting how this all this stuff ties together. But um, to give our listeners some context, this was a DOS game that I believe was you were first person in the mech. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so that game did like okay, and then I believe they they put together some sort of demo for like something very RPG like. I, I think because they, they, they must have naturally also like the you know, RPG games. And then I think the company they were working with, uh, they happened to have the D&D license and said, hey, we could like turn this into a D&D game. Um, and uh, that's how Baldur's Gate, the very first one, started. So I think that was only the second game they ever made. And uh, it had a three-year production cycle. And it wasn't until the last year that like um, they, they were still practicing medicine, funding the game. Yeah that way um and then uh, yeah and, and of course you know that game was a mega hit uh, people said it revitalized like uh you know rpgs on a pc and uh, sold like millions and yeah that, that's when they they realized like yeah that was the right decision to go full-time with that but um uh interplay is the company that owned the D, &D license and they also uh did like fallout and descent and everything i think they lost the license uh a few years ago or oh, yeah. maybe a decade ago or something, but yeah, that was the company that they had. Uh, I, I don't I know what they, they ship with Interplay. Under. Uh, yeah, no, they're definitely. Uh, yeah, they're definitely out of business at this point. But they were. Uh, um, I think the the remnants of them founded In Exile. That's been doing the Wasteland reboots. Mm. Uh, okay. Okay. Because at, at this point, obviously, the Fallout IP went over to Bethesda, 
Um, and you have like people, people like Brian Fargo that are pretty well known within that. But yeah, Interplay yeah. was a big piece of uh, the D and D. Um, it's a lot of kind of core. Uh, I think they did Icewind Dale as well, didn't they? Icewind Dale. Up in that game. Yeah, it was published oh, oh, by oh. Interplay, is, and it was developed exciting. by Black Isle. This is a pretty exciting tie back to our previous episode, but Interplay also published Mario Teaches Typing. <laughs> oh, <That's right>. okay. <laughs> Yeah, they're handling a lot of stuff. Oh, Mario is very much uh, the destructible environments and interactions. Like, I wonder if Divinity and Baldur's Gate could, if their physics engine could could handle like a, a Mario sliding shell. Like, imagine throwing a turn-based shell and then watching it bounce around the room and kill all the orcs and kill yourself. Now, the idea of a turn-based shell is pretty exciting for some reason. Well, then it's like those pool games where you see the path of, like, the pool ball, and then you just kind of hope it goes. Actually, Puzzle Bobble is kind of like that, too. Because, Rich, when you were you were uh, going through Bioware's history, I think we stopped you early on in their history with Interplay. Oh, dude, <laughs> it's all yeah. good. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering if uh, maybe, like, do you think, how, how do you think their experiences as as doctors, as trained medical doctors, uh, might have influenced their games. Like, for instance, I think, um, I believe, at, at least one of them might have had, like, his own practice, like a family practice. So he must have, you know, a lot of that is just dealing uh, with people. Aside from diagnosing people, it's also, like, you have to really know how to how to talk to people and and, and communicate with them and make, yeah, in, in, a, in an effective way, make sure they actually listen to what you're saying. Uh, it put them at ease. Yeah, I wonder if that informed um, sort of the their their very uh, just the way they approached making RPGs, where they really emphasized uh, that human interactivity and not not just like leveling up. In Baldur's Gate, there's always there's like books on shelves that you can just go through. Like there's a lot of extra content that's lying there waiting to be discovered. Well, I think. Uh... That's pretty important that uh, Bioware games have always been well known for the interaction and the gameplay has always been fun enough, but it's it's always been kind of like a path to get to the interaction and the dialogue. And I feel like many would tell you that their their recent stumbles on a lot of their games has been because they deviated from uh, that focus, right? The, the focus on like interactivity and the human connection. So maybe you're right. Maybe being the doctor and human connections had something to do with it. Um, Makes a lot of sense. Oh shoot! Did you did you guys know they made MDK too? Do you, do you remember MDK, that crazy uh, shooter from Shiny? Who, who yeah, yeah. MD, MDK like... was one of the the first to have uh, cover shooting elements and quick time events. Oh yeah. shoot! Was it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, so so for those who don't know, um, MDK was uh, made by Shiny, who had, were very famous for Earthworm Jim at that point. Um, but, but MDK was a 3D shooter. But it was third person, right? Uh, there was like platforming elements, and main character was this really cool-looking dude, like, um, like all dressed head to toe, all black, um, and his head was like a gun. He, he had a sniper rifle for a head, um, and then you could describe him as pyramid-headed, actually. Yeah, ah, I was gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very angular. Um, well, and he a, felt a, like a 2000 AD nemesis, the warlock character. Yeah, he did. Yeah, if he he's did, a doctor, what? isn't he? The well, character in MDK. Yeah. Oh, isn't there a character that is a doctor? That oh no, I, 
Yeah, I thought he got turned. I thought he was like a janitor or something. I, like he just happened to be the guy on hand. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, sorry. You're right. You're right. You're right. There is a character that's a doctor. But there is a doctor character. Yeah. 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 Sorry, go ahead. Like it looks serious, but it was like a very humorous game, like Earthworm Jim. Yeah. I oh, yeah. I I think it had like a counter instead of having a timer. It had like the total population of the human race. That was just like counting down. To encourage you to like, you know, to 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 get through the game quicker, it was it had a dark sense of humor. But anyways, like really weird game. You wouldn't expect uh, Bioware to be um, to be given the sequel to that, which uh, they they did a good job with. Yeah, yeah, they have a really interesting history. Yeah, I think that was what they worked on right before they worked on Baldur's Gate Two. Was MDK Two? Yeah, it did pretty yeah. well, didn't it? Uh, it got pretty good reviews. People really liked it, if I recall. I, I, I don't know how well it sold, but I remember it was very... Uh, both of them were critically acclaimed. They stood out. They were fun. You know, I'm not as familiar with Baldur's Gate 2, actually. Uh, it's, a, it's a direct sequel to Baldur's Gate 1, obviously. I I haven't played it in a really long time, but I remember that the beginning of the game, you start off getting tortured. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I... I didn't play Baldur's Gate 2, but it was, like, much more grim now. It, it definitely... It, it, it looked a little... Like- Oh, I was going to say, it uh, It looked a little better than Baldur's Gate 1, Baldur's Gate 2, but it was still very much that pre-rendered uh, isometric background with, uh, like, a 2D sprites on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember the the uh, formation of your party had a lot to do. Like, uh, I, I guess, like, it sounds like y'all didn't play it as much, but it actually came with a giant manual. Uh, like, and I don't, I don't mean, like, you know how game manuals used to be a bigger deal than they were. I mean, Baldur's Gate 2 came with a book that had, like... I think the game's got over 300 spells in it, so... Wow. Uh, it, it was... And I believe it's based on 2nd edition D&D. It could be wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah it is. But, yeah. So it's it's definitely um, one of those games where they invested pretty heavily in making the the combat and the way you do spells a core part of understanding the game. But I remember it's it looked... Both games, like, I, I enjoyed the way they looked. They, uh, from an interface perspective, they had a ton of buttons. Like, there's a ton of complexity. Uh, and, like, it's not very streamlined game. Like, the inventory and picking up things is, and managing them and moving them between your characters is, like, very, very manual. Uh, like, it takes a lot of effort, but yeah. I think it's what made it, uh, made it such an investment. Like, you, you did so much work, so much managing of stats and characters, and it really mattered. Uh, like, uh, just like watching the the Butters Gate Two uh, demo at PAX, like every encounter was hard. It, you know, it yeah. wasn't like he was just fighting a nothing enemy in that demo, and they killed him in the first uh, playthrough that I watched. Butters Gate Two reminds me a lot of that. It was just like if you made one wrong move in terms of where you positioned uh, your your characters, uh, you could die to basically anything pretty easily. It was a really hard game. So. Um... I want to talk about Divinity uh, Original Sin uh, a bit. Um, was that regarded as, like, a spiritual successor to Baldur's Gate? Like, Well, was... it's not actually D&D rules, as Andy yeah, was mentioning. Yeah, yeah I think it was uh, regarded as a spiritual successor. I mean, like, how important is it to have the D&D IP or to be able to say you have D&D rules? Because, like, there's so many fantasy IPs out there that are D&D inspired, but they're their own thing now. So, you know, Baldur's Gate 3 being made, 
that's interesting because we already have the Baldur's Gate makers doing their own thing. Now they're doing D&D again. Like, how important is it to call it D&D? Does it really affect the game that much? Well, I guess it is important in the sense of, like, I was able to, you know, talk about Spelljammers. We can talk yeah, about, man. like, what mind players are. So yeah. Yes. Well, I think, uh, to be fair, the, like, so... Larian has been making Divinity games for like since like 2000, I think, uh, maybe oh, even wow. before yeah. that. And oh, really? It's okay. all based on Divine Divinity, I believe, is the original uh, game, and it was it was a little bit more similar to like a Diablo, like it was, but it was it was more of a, a, jam, a mashup of like a hack and slash ARPG and a what, what's called a CPG, you know, what we're talking about, a yeah. computer role playing. So I think it definitely had you know elements elements of D&D, and uh, I think the dialogue was very similar, but I think they went kind of on a journey to becoming more and more like D&D and respecting it in a different way, right? There is uh, one very large limitation in, like, the core D&D setting, though. It's uh, fighters don't do anything magical without magic equipment. So if it's a D&D world, then you can't have a, a fighter, like, cut a stone in half with just a sword it has to be a magic sword well of course that's just common common sense <laughs> but then it's like how do you write a level 10 fighter versus a level 10 wizard because your boulders gate 2 book has most of the content is wizard spells and then the fighter can be summed up as he has more hit points now like um in the core dmd rules and so on there is a a problem with every edition that if you're playing in the tabletop game, you can just have the DM, like, write it off or, like, give the fighter, like, you know, turns out you're the son of Zeus, you have lightning powers now, or you got the Holy Avenger, like, you're the only one with the specific magic sword to slay that specific god. But in, as a setting, though, it's, uh, some characters are inherently magical and have inherent, you know, level 20 powers. Other characters they need to acquire level 20 equipment to be level 20 character. Well, um, wasn't the original idea, uh, so like going way back for, uh, you know, the first edition, like, I think they approached it, the difference between fighters and wizards uh, as the difference between jocks and nerds. And I think uh, clearly this was made by nerds, even differentiated all that. Like the idea was like the fighter starts off stronger, right? Like has more hit points, can can it you know keep doing attacks? Yeah. Doesn't run out of spells, um, but then he sort of like hits his ceiling earlier. Whereas like the the wizard keeps getting more and more powerful and eventually um, outpaces the fighter. And and that's always been that's always been a huge imbalance in in the games, right? Yeah. Uh, to this day, there is a a theory that because. Gary Gygax was, like, he did insurance or something. Like, he actually plotted it, like, different insurance plans or something. I don't know what about it. Okay. Yeah, because, like, their growth is different at different levels. They have different experience charts. So, like, yeah. you really are supposed to... The, the wizard is an investment. The fighter <laughs> is a steady, safe thing at the beginning. Okay. Well, he was also expecting characters to die and retire instead of just, like, hang around at level 17. 
But it's very, very rare for any D&D story to actually get into what high-level D&D is. Like, uh, you know, there's no D&D novel where they go, we're going to scry, find the sleeping bad guy, teleport in, and just, you know, nuke him with, like, a death cloud. No one wins a D&D novel that way. It's always, <laughs> we go sword fight. But all of those spells are available. Has has anyone ever tried writing, you know, like a, a narrative where you, the world does operate with, as if yeah. all those spells were, were real, you know? Yes, it's, but, it's Hagiwara's bastard. That's right. Because they're, because the, when the godly angels and super demons invade, like the, uh, the fighters and even the ninjas are like, oh, Jesus, what do we do? And it's the the highest level wizard is the guy that has to actually be able to, to blast his way out of hell because he has the arcane knowledge to do that. No, you're right, because, um, yeah, 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 actually, okay, so if, if you're not, if you're listening and you're confused right now, um, uh, Bastard, I think the full title was Heavy Metal Fantasy Bastard, it was... Uh, uh, Shonen Jump comic, uh, very D and D inspired. Um, yeah. And yeah, I remember reading it, and the main characters did keep stacking spells on top of themselves, and they had like so many like fail safes for like not dying. Right? Yeah. I think um, and, uh, when when like the first vampire bad guy shows up, he's the minion of a, an even stronger wizard because. You can create vampires and summon vampires in D&D. And um, in this class I ran where I introduced students to D&D for the first time, like, they just kind of intuitively did, like, what bastard villains did. It was like, well, we'll just make an army of undead to do our, min- our stuff for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah the main character, DS, he even had, like... Um... Yeah, he was like hundreds of years old. He, I, I think, he, on some past adventure, he got like some worms that would like regenerate his body. So he, he's like full of worms. Yeah. In case he died, and I remember one of the coolest details was um, later when the, the the power scaling in that story goes crazy. Uh, it's maybe the only comic where they're arguably maybe stronger than the Dragon Ball characters. Because they, they get into, like, God coming back, and then you have, like, the biblical angels appearing, and they're just about indestructible, because they have, like, they're, they're not even made out of atoms. They're, like, made out of, like, some, you know... They're, they're, uh, they like, have eternal atoms. Yes. Um, they exist on the physical plane. They exist on either a spiritual plane or multiple spiritual planes and yeah. you have to attack them with something that annihilates all of their atoms at every single plane yeah. or they'll be able to come back yeah it was nuts and i, I remember they they could like um i remember they, all the high level wizards on on earth were nothing to them because they could attack they're these you know divine beings of light they could attack you and convert your body into photons that would just scatter across the universe, um, since you only existed on the physical plane, right? Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that series did 
did have by the books D and D logic. I would say arguably a lot of isekai now now kind of have that too. Not yeah, quite. They 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 kind of tend to just kind of stay at like the dungeon crawling stage and then maybe raising an army, but uh, they don't go that deep. My favorite story to tell is uh, in D and D you can turn invisible, sneak up wait for someone to take a poo and then shrink them so they fall into the toilet and drown. <laughs> Man, why isn't there a video game where you can do that? Yeah. I mean, not specifically, like, make someone fall into their own poop. That might be... I don't know if that's legal anymore, but, you know, just shrink someone so they fall into their campfire or they fall into the soup they're making. Because I have seen games with, like, growing and shrinking, but they tend to be, like, a puzzle game where you don't really interact with anything else. It, it like, would be fun to explore all the unintended consequences of all these weird rules that pop up. Yeah, in, like, uh, if we look at D&D's rules for an escape artist, if you have a certain bonus to your escape artist role, like, you can go into holes that are smaller than your skull. So hypothetically, like, you could crawl up somebody's butt. <laughs> the rules say so. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yes, the freedom of D&D. Too. Yeah. That's, that's the tabletop experience that even yeah. these advanced video games can't do. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll <laughs> see. We'll, we'll see how far they get in Baldur's yeah. Gate 3. We'll yeah. see if you can climb up into, into another person's butt. I mean, well, I mean, they really have focused on. <laughs> there's already a tadpole that went into your eyeball. Yeah. Well, it's true, and they really focused on verticality in this one, so. <laughs> yeah, the microverse. Oh man, yeah, can't can't wait to see what they have in store. I actually really enjoyed watching that uh, that gameplay demo. Yeah, so did you guys uh, remember the part where uh, he uh, he kind of panics and he throws his boots? at one of the enemies, and it kills him. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. And he summons, like, a mage hand just so it can throw one of the enemies off of the top of the cliff. There's a ton of really, like, fun, genuine interactions that you can't can't necessarily plan for, but uh, they're yeah. doing a good job of uh, allowing for it. In D&D 3rd Edition, there was, like, some really convoluted way of like, because as editions go on, different writers write different parts of the rules, and then unintended consequences come up. So, like, one of the most powerful builds for a, a non-magic user in D&D 3rd Edition was just to throw things really hard, because different writers just kept on, like, writing different classes that gave bonuses to throw them. So you could, like, kill a dragon with your boots by the rules. <laughs> We'll see, like, maybe Baldur's Gate 3 will be playful with that. Well, they have a system where, like, could you fill the boots with oil so then the boots soak somebody in oil? I mean, some of the stuff they show is already pretty close to that, like showing interactions with uh, oil and things that can catch on fire. So that sounds entirely yeah. reasonable to me. These are all interactions that exist in the really insanely detailed, what, DOS game. Dwarf Fortress. Oh, yes. The game with no graphics, but physics for everything. Baldur's Gate 3 is approaching Dwarf Fortress, but with graphics where you can actually kind of tell what, what's happening and 
for the Kelly. Yeah. This That's podcast pretty... is as long as uh, what director's cut of the last Lord of the Rings movie. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> I thought this would be a quick one, too, but apparently we, we had a lot to say about uh, Baldur's Gate. Oh, man. Um, so just to close things out, um, let's say, like, what what are you looking forward to in in Baldur's Gate 3? Uh, I can add, um, I, I didn't, I, I really enjoyed uh, Divinity, but I, like, unlike other games where I watch them, I had a hard time watching people play Divinity, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way that they do the dialogue, which is really engaging if you're playing. Yeah. But, uh, I, so I'm actually pretty excited about the dialogue camera that they seem to have on display in Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, I yeah. feel like it's going to add an extra element, and the as weird as it sounds, the pullback camera that they've added. So Divinity 2, or Divinity Original Sin 2, whatever, I forget the configuration of the title. Uh, so that game, uh, it has, like, almost everything stays isometric. Like, you very much feel like you're on an isometric grid or like you're on a grid the whole time. Uh, I feel like Baldur's Gate 2 felt much more organic just watching it, like the verticality, the, the talking camera. So I'm actually pretty excited to... Uh, and not just, like, the... Not just the way they're able to tell the story now, but also the fact that it's a narrative that I know about. Like I, I never really got into Divinity, so I didn't know much about the world. Uh, I have a lot of investment in the Baldur's Gate worlds. Uh, granted, it's Forgotten Realms like anything else, but I have a lot more investment and time with that setting and those characters, and I'm hoping to see other characters show up in it. So I feel like all those things together will have a much stronger narrative, and I'm a big, big fan of good narratives in games. Andy, any uh, any thoughts? I mean, Baldur's Gate 1 had a dragon. Divinity is famous for their physics engine, so Baldur's Gate 3 have a engine that models, like, what happens if a dragon sits on a halfling. <laughs> <laughs> so you're looking forward to the sandbox aspect of it. Yeah, like, how weird can they make it? Because the Baldur's Gate 1 dragon was more like a... It was like a death event because it was just they would have trouble like having a giant model move around and it was inside of the cave so it's not flying around freely. Which Dragon's Dogma does really well. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to the weird things people are gonna do in this game mm. and maybe modding and strange things like could you have a Mario Red Shell that bounces around the walls? Yeah, just yeah, the the dragons they had in the cinematic looked really really cool. They did a great job. Oh yeah, yeah. Actually, real quick, I, I really enjoyed that opening. That the the premise is really cool. Like there's a sense of urgency to everything. But um, I also like that like that, so the mind flayer comes and is you know in the the star jammer and like he's just messing stuff up. But then. You actually have the guardians of the realm on dragons come, and then they like f him up, you know. Like they're, you're not, they're not totally helpless. Yeah. They even, I think they even like followed yeah. him through his portal, right, when he teleported. Yeah, yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. I don't. Um, so I, I just kind of liked, I, I liked the way they did that. I, I just liked that attention to detail and like. You know, this guy shows up and you think, oh, he's going to be like the last boss. And then it's like, no, like he's he's trying to disrupt the order of this world that's existed for, um, you know, decades yeah. in the collective imagination of everyone. And it's it's fighting back. So, uh, yeah, like anyone riding a dragon in the Forgotten Realms has already killed 10 mind players. 
Yeah. That's just how level progression works. <laughs> oh, oh, really? That's really cool. I like that. Yeah. Like, they're that he, strong. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I just... One of the jokes in uh, Forgotten Realms is that, like, there's just powerful people, like, hanging around anywhere at any given time because so many writers have delved into it. Okay. <laughs> yes. is, 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 is Elminster Forgotten Realms? That's the, the custom character of... I think the writer's name is, like, Ed Greenwood or something. Okay. But, like, uh, he might be able to go through different dimensions, and now he's, like, yeah. either dating the goddess of magic or is a god of magic yeah. now. I don't know. Uh, just, just just so the readers, uh, the readers, the, the listeners know, um, Elminster was, like, at least when, when I was playing, he was, like, the de facto, like, oh, this guy's, like, the strongest character in, you know, in, in the game. That's a mortal, a, a mortal guy, not not like a god. He was a wizard, of course. Uh, yes, uh, Elementor is in Forgotten Realms. You're nice. Correct. I, yeah, I think for for me, what I'm looking forward to the most is, um, well, obviously, like everything you guys said, like this mixture of uh, returning to a familiar setting, something that like you know I've spent like years of my my childhood with, not through just one game, but through like you know books and campaigns and even comics um, and then also just being able to do weird stuff <laughs> there go go you know have a heroic journey experience a fulfilling story but also yeah I'm looking forward to seeing how they'll handle the the inherent weirdness of uh, pen and paper RPGs well I I also I noticed that a couple I've seen a couple of things online where people saying it, it feels too much like divinity original sin and I was like what Oh, what are you talking about? That's why they hired Larian. Like they can bring oh. this element to it, but now they're also layering on actual D and D rules, and it's they're taking on the actual uh, Forgotten Realms universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, Sorry, I think like that. That can be a criticism if it's in the sense of like in Divinity, like okay, like yeah, you can like electrocute a guy in a pool of water and then turn it into like an evil cloud of evil lightning but it takes multiple turns to set up so that would be the the thing like the flaw to watch out for is there's all these interactions but will you be able to do it in an obvious and and a satisfyingly fast way instead of like this will be a good payoff five turns later and then you forget it does seem like most of the elements that make a you know like a larian game a larian one are very there's nothing particular to that story, that world. It's just it's a very uh, big focus on freedom and environmental things. Uh, and a lot of people kind of criticized that the original Baldur's Gate games didn't have verticality. But I don't know if that was a creative choice that they need to respect as much as it was uh, how games were, you know, you were mentioning. People just don't think of verticality for the most part. They generally imagine things happening on one plane unless the DM gives them that detail right so i i think i think, I think yeah. it's actually an interesting element uh but i just i thought it was an interesting take and i'm not worried about it but uh, i could definitely see where people are coming from too yeah, yeah it looks cool i'm really excited yeah. Yeah. oh and also how many squares will a horse take up <laughs> very important because question. it's traditional that, that is the question a horse is as wide as it is long because that's what? just how D D works what do you mean? Because their their rules for spacing was like you either have one square or four squares. There was no facing. <laughs> yeah. This 
cubic horses. Yes, like this, this reminds would be me like a early like 1999 internet. People would be like, you know, like here's this 20 page thread on whether horses should be square or violate the rules of D and D. So I have to say, in Shikoden 2, you can recruit uh, a unicorn character that isn't a playable character. It's one of the few characters in the, the main turn-based battle system that takes up two slots uh, vertically, uh, mm-hmm. which is was always kind of... Because it has that kind of six that six-person battle system. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so I, I, I can't imagine... There might have been some influence there as well. The horse definitely takes up... Uh, it's on his face because of that. I mean, it's a unicorn with a horse. It's a horse. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. And, oh, almost forgot a word from our not sponsors for this podcast. Um, so today's podcast was not brought to you by, by Blender. Blender is a free and open source 3D computer graphics software tool set. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's totally free. Uh, it is a awesome, awesome... Um, you know, program. It's it's a real. It's becoming a real serious competitor, I think, to to, to Maya and and Max and uh, the other high-end 3D software that's out there. Um, yeah, in all seriousness, like I, I highly recommend uh, Blender for, especially if you're doing um, uh, not real-time, but like uh, you know, pre-rendered stuff, like meant for film, you know, movie scenes. It's it's really excellent. It's got really good modeling tools. Uh, not quite at the level of say um zbrush but it's it's competitive and it's it's free so uh yeah if doesn't you, it also have a low poly monkey mascot I, does it <laughs> yeah maybe um okay i i'll give you an interesting fact um i blender was originally called neo geo and this was in 1990 right around the time <laughs> SNK was also, you know, had just released the uh, the Neo Geo, um, you know, arcade uh, and home console, the first home console that was exactly the same as an arcade board. Um, and I don't know, there was something in the air. These two two amazing companies both came out with an amazing product called Neo Geo that, uh, it, you know, is still, uh, well, yeah, the Neo Geo is gone. But, but man, what, I didn't know Blender was that old till I looked this up. Um, yeah, they're still around. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so I just checked in this. The, uh, yeah, the monkey, his name is Suzanne. There is actually an annual award that the Blender Foundation gives out called the Suzanne Award uh, oh, for animators. Nice. But yes, it's a low-poly uh, 3D bunny. I believe it has only 500 faces. Uh, tries. Oh, wow. wow. It's uh, apparently also used in a lot of joke or test images. Uh, I don't know if that's still the case. It's, it's pretty old, but it's, it's definitely got famous for it. So Suzanne the bunny. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, try it out. Try out Blender. It's good stuff. Nice. All right, guys. Let's let's close it out there. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for hanging out again. Always always fun to chat. Um, yeah, thank you for everyone that's that's listening. I hope you enjoy it. Please um, if you enjoy it, please subscribe. Uh, follow us on Twitter for updates. Uh, our handle is at Art Eater Podcast. Um, yeah, just check in there for, for updates. Let, let us know how many squares you think a horse should take. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Have a good See one. See ya. Home.